everybody. Welcome to this stream. We got it. Kayla, welcome. How you doing, man? Doing good, dude. I'm doing good. Yeah, it's good to see you. You grew, right. you grew your hair out. Yeah, yeah. I kind of had a kind of went on a little journey, you know. Got in my car and just drove a bit, you know. Uh, sort of had a complete mental breakdown, and then just decided to, you know, have a bit of a shift. And uh, yeah, grew my hair out. Grew your hair out. Stop taking showers. Got your chakras aligned. Yeah, you know, you have one of those moments. No, actually, I 100% know about those moments. Life is those moments. So, cool, man. Um, welcome, everybody, to the stream today. It looks like we've got some awesome people joining us in the chat. So I just wanted to acknowledge the fact that Derrida Bodlikanian is here in the chat. Master Signified Bodies, Solitariat, Atomic Source, Time Energy Wanter. Probably one of my favorite uh, names of all time. Also, that... that that person's avatar is Slavoj. It's it's a meme that uh, came up on on uh, one of my meme group pits a little while ago. It's Slavoj saying, um, uh, "I would prefer time energy." So yeah, that's awesome. But uh, everybody, today we're going to be talking to Caleb Kane here. Who oh, I'm I'm going to assume an audience of people who aren't familiar with Caleb Kane. Um, so I talked to him like I don't know when, when did we talk last, Caleb? Probably close to three years now. So it was like three years ago. I think we did it on the New Civilization Publishing uh, YouTube. And uh, that was, uh, we were joined by, I think it was American Johnson, right? From uh, from Non-Compete. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, we were talking about the, because he had done that video called the PewDiePie Pipeline, right? Which was basically about how you start watching some mainstream YouTube videos like PewDiePie. And then you uh, you end up getting recommended Ben Shapiro, and next thing you know, you're watching like alt right stuff. And and there had been an article that had come out. It was in the New York Times, right? About you. Yeah. So I was featured. I made a YouTube video where I kind of described my process of going through the far right. You know, at the time you would have kind of called it the alt right. Well, I was never like you know fully alt right, as they say. Uh, that's why I kind of liked the, uh, the pipeline analogy because it demonstrates, you know, how there's a sort of process and there's uh, not one place where you can end up, but at the time, you know, there was kind of like one place where you can end up, sort of. And so anyway, I made a video detailing that process that I went through, mostly through just consuming YouTube videos. And then um, that video went viral online. I was reached out to by some journalists at the New York Times. I don't recommend ever talking to journalists in the New York Times, even though I don't read it. Um, but uh, yeah, so it was, and I was featured in a story. So obviously, you know, it was relevant to the whole conversation about radicalization. And so I wanted to bring you on for that. And it's like we talked then and then we never really talked again for a while. And a big part of the reason was I went through my own a series of crises and was wondering what the hell I'm even doing on the internet. Why am I here? What am I trying to do? Um, trying to have a voice, but also you can't have a voice without kind of falling into this algorithmic game of, oh, they're telling you to do all these things that you got to do if you want to be an influencer. And 
do you have to become an influencer if you just want to get your ideas out there and like think through some ideas or whatever? Like, do those two things have to go hand in hand? And so I kind of dis- I kind of deconstructed that for myself, and then I I took some time away over the last couple of years. For the most part, I put some stuff out, but I mostly like reassessed what I'm doing, closed down my Patreon uh, like over a year ago, and uh, spent like another year like just figuring it out. Published my own book, and then. Um, and it was kind of like for the people who've kind of been around, not, it's not like a big publication or anything like that. It's just for people who, to show them where I've been at, what I've been working through. And, uh, and now I'm back at it. And a big part of what I've been doing just for the last few couple months is a lot of these two to three hour conversation streams. And, um, so it's like this whole, I've got this playlist building called plebe get schooled by amazing people. You absolutely must know. And I would say that you're one of those amazing people people absolutely must know. Um, but the thing is, is um, I, I think that this is going to go in a different register because that's basically where I'm like getting that, – that's where I bring on professors. Um, this one is – this one's a little bit more of like the Professor Plebe playlist that I've got going because you reached out to me after – it's been a while since we've talked, right? And, and you reached out to me um, asking me about theory. And so I kind of just want to like set you up to, to talk about that for a little bit. So what – you're getting into theory. What's that to you? And by the way, everybody, how's this mic coming through now? I turned it down a little bit on the audio assembly gain, so hopefully it's not too hot anymore. But yeah, you're getting into theory. What's that all about? What's that been like? And how did yeah, that come? So, how did that come about? So what you're describing, you're sort of like, uh, you're sort of reframing process of like, how, what do I do online? What? Why am I here? What's the point to even be here? Um, of course, I never came online to try to be a content creator or to try to have like a specific message. I mean, I thought that that channel would just pretty much go nowhere when I first made that first video. Um, and so for me, it was just going to be just something to do, to not take very seriously. Of course, once the video went viral, I had a lot of options opened up to me. Now, first, I was getting invited to conferences and shit. Oh. Um, I was getting reached out to by um, YouTubers, like American Johnson was one of the first YouTubers to reach out to me. You know, I had been contacted by people like Peter Coffin and like all these YouTubers that, you know, I'd been watching just, you know, the months prior to making that video, very surreal experience for me. And then also I had a lot of um, people within this, uh, this professional sphere of countering, it's called countering violent extremism. CBE. And it's like this really, it's this like cottage core industry that got set up to combat radical Islam. Of course, we saw a lot, a lot of that went. The idea is to sort of combat radicalization, right? From a, a non, you know, securitizing, securitizing uh, perspective. Although a lot of, you know, as I learned, a lot of these groups, they do have very, they, they very much have connection to that apparatus. You know, they're, they're sort of like, the think tank, you know, arm of the security state. Think tank, think tank and propaganda, no doubt. Right. So, yeah. Yeah. And so like, you know, I, I, I sort of leaned into that a lot more, um, after, you know, my video blew up and the, I was in the New York times and, you know, my whole purpose and, and idea of everything that I was doing during that time was I wanted to prevent people like me from having the experience that I had, um, you know, from going online, 
not having answers for the world, being confused about the world and being upset about that confusion and about how terrible things are going and how we just, over the years, we just see an increasing decline in that. And you go online and the first thing you find are a bunch of conspiracy theories to like contextualize it for you. And those conspiracy theories end up being used maliciously to pull you into further cults, further ideological sex, and to just atomize you from society, just alienate you from society, make you more and more hateful and resentful. And and so, you know, I, I wanted to prevent stuff like that. And, you know, I ran a Discord server for a while where I tried to talk to people. That was a failure. Then I got this job at this this think tank in academia in DC, and that didn't work out. You know, partially because I'm not the type of person that can just like go along to get along. So, um, so can you tell me like what kinds of what what were you doing involved in that? What what was that like? What, um, what did that involve? The biggest thing, the biggest. So the the whole idea in there was preventative, like to find preventative measures, right? To like. Mostly, I was being used as like a like a source of context, right? Because and and you'll see this a lot. They this industry will um, there's a lot of they call them formers, and so they'll take people that used to be in like neo-Nazi movements, mostly people from like the 80s and 90s. They'll take like former skinheads and neo-Nazis and you know all these people and use them for context to help them like form strategies and counter narratives. What we were doing at the university was inoculation. It was mostly around inoculation theory. So trying to find ways to create, um, find ways to create narratives to deploy, to then get people to not even want to engage in, you know, extremist material in the first place. I mean, sort of my my issue with it was you know, at the point when I just sort of like completely gave up. I mean, I, I went through all sorts of stuff, you know, I, I've been researching the far right this entire time for the past three years, right? Pretty much 24 seven. I haven't worked uh, a regular job outside of that, that university job. So I devoted all my time to this. And, you know, I was even there on January 6th. And so you were, are you saying time, you were, I, you were at this, uh, this think tank, January sixth, or are you saying that you were like at the Capitol on January sixth? I was I was working at the think tank, and so okay. that's that placed me in DC, and so then I was like, well, I'm just going to go to this thing because I was going to these things and taking pictures, and um, you know, right. being a little bit all over the place, but you know, I'll, I'll make this make sense. So I was going to these things and you know taking pictures, and basically, my sort of theory is that there's there was like a, a breakdown of these groups that these groups formed into like specific little like ideological groupings. And then those groupings were then being, they were having more extreme materials injected into them. So like I'd show up to these things and Patriot Front and overt white nationalist group would be going around sticking signs on like MAGA freedom boomers signs. They put these little stickers on their signs and, um, just doing all sorts of stuff like that. You'd see Nick Fuentes there and they'd be riling up their movement. And so I was like trying to analyze, you know, by going taking pictures and talking to people, how these groups were intermingling and coalescing. And I was doing a lot of that. And so I was going to these, these, these protests in 
DC. And then, um, I mean, during this period of time leading up to January 6th, I was getting increasingly blackmailed on the situation. I felt like at my job, everything that we were doing was very, like, academic and, like, disconnected from having any influence. Right. Um, I felt like the narratives, like, we worked on, like, one, you know, memorable inoculation program, and I was just like, this is, I, I just, I, I felt like it was silly. I, I felt like it was really silly, the whole thing. I mean, I guess, I, I don't know, I just felt like it was silly. I felt like this isn't going to do it. This really isn't going to do it. And I started getting increasingly sort of like disenfranchised with that entire industry. Um, and I wanted to do something active. And then so that, you know, I'm not going to get into you know, personal work stuff or whatever, right? But but all these things sort of like accelerated to me leaving that job. Well, on January 6th, leading up to that moment, you know, that was like, I think January 6th was one of the last moments for me where I was just like, we're fucked. Like this thing, this thing's coming like a boulder down the hill and like, we're not prepared for it at all. And, you know, a couple months after that, I left the job and I just had a real, like, when I left the job, I just had a real like breakdown, like completely. I, and, and part of it was, you know, being disillusioned that there's going to be some de-radicalization method, you know, that we can tap into. Part of it was seeing just how accelerated the, the, the radicalization with just re even just conservatives had gotten. I mean, we watched QAnon during that period blow up, you know, uh, over the period, um, you know, the year leading up to, to January 6th. We saw all sorts of stuff just explode. Things that I was like, I had always like kept in my head is like, oh, well, these are like fantasy, you know, scenarios. These are like worst case fantasy scenarios. And then January 6th happened. It's like, wow, every fear that you have, every intuition that you have is going to come true. And there's nothing you can do about it. And then at the same time, I was becoming increasingly disillusioned with the left. And I, up until that point, I had this imagination that there was like, this leftist movement and especially online and we could tap into these content creators and we could build counter narratives if we could just figure out how to just like just fine tune them and you know i think january 6th just took that sort of technocratic idealist mentality i had and smashed it on the floor and it was around that period of time that i had my breakdown when i say breakdown i don't mean like i was running around the streets i just mean i was incredibly depressed yeah and i gave up all hope and I just sort of went into this like dark introspective place. And it was interesting when I gave up all hope, when I just was like, we're fucked. There's nothing. A really interesting thing happened. It was like, it's like, you know, they talk about grief cycle. You come to the end of a grief cycle and they talk about how at the end of a grief cycle, you know, these things aren't linear, but you come to the end of it and you can either accept the situation you're in and learn from it and grow from it. Or you can just continue to go into denial, have a catharsis, and just go back to the same sort of cycle. And I see these as sort of like identity cycles, right? And I think in that moment, I was just like, academia is not going to save us. The, the Democrats aren't going to save us. The government's not going to save us. People aren't going to like get their shit together on the right and, and wise up to this shit. 
and there is no, and it's not that the left isn't going to save us. It's that there is no left. There's no left at all. These are a bunch of goofballs, and honestly, their actions are like jackboots for the system. And I was like, we're fucked. And when I, and when I said all that to myself, my mind just like exploded with more new ideas. Like just naturally, I was just like, well, what about this? Well, what if we tried this? Or what if we did that? And I think, you know, anytime you have one of those moments, there's always the coming down to, to earth, right? Because it's like, okay, but I'm still powerless, right? I'm still powerless. But it proved to me that there was different ways to think about this stuff. And simultaneously during that period, I think my interest in theory sort of hit a peak because this, this is, you know, this is where the theory comes in. Up until that point, um, I had been sort of like dabbling in theory without really fully understanding what I was doing. Yeah. You know, sort of like someone in the chemistry lab just sort of like picking things up. Uh, prior to all of this experience, I thought theory, whenever I thought of like leftist theory or critical theory, I either thought of, I thought two things came to mind. One was you're sitting down, you're reading Marx, you're reading Capital, and you're just learning about the economy and how we're going to do them a revolution. And at this point, I'm just like, you know, we're, there's not, we're not going to do them a revolution, right? It's like, that's silly. It's, that's nonsense to me. So that never interested me. And the other side of theory, which didn't interest me, was this sort of like, I don't know what you would call this. I think some people call it post postmodernism, but it's like you go into university and, or, or, you know, the right to call it identity politics, you know, um, what, what would you, what would you give a name to all that sort of stuff? Like, uh, uh, like the Rob, you know, the Robin D'Angelo type shit. Well, and cause of course that's going to be called by like Jordan Peterson, just like, it's going to be like the, the postmodern neo-Marxism cause he just combines right. it, he combines it all or whatever, but really what he means you know, he basically just means identity politics, like militant identity politics, um, which, you know, to, I, and I, I think that people are too deflationary on this and say, oh, well, that's that's incoherent. It doesn't make any sense. Well, postmodernism doesn't make any sense. And if you read the critical race theory reader, like they're 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 down with postmodernism. It's not like they're not down with it. They'll they'll say they're down with it, but they'll never really get into what they mean. Right. But as yeah. as far as like, yeah, the. You know, the, I, I would say that uh, Robin D'Angelo and Kimber Max Kendi and them, they're like the pop newsstand best bestseller version of the Kimberly Crenshaw kind of theory stuff. And, the, you know, it's you know, contemporary uh, gender, race or, you know, postcolonial kinds of theories um, get called lowercase critical theory. And the reason it gets called lowercase critical theories, actually it's probably plural, um, is because critical theory proper was like the Frankfurt School. But there's not much of a connection between those two things. There's really not. And so, uh, you know, it's it's funny that someone like Peterson will blame it all on Derrida and Foucault uh, when not, you know, and and so, you know, and, and then some conservative group like. Uh, the John Birch Society will blame it on the Frankfurt School or whatever, but it's like, eh, that's debatable. But the the lowercase critical theory stuff basically comes out of like English classes, some some social science classes. It's not it's not as it's not as widespread as people 
make it out to be. And in my experience, I mean, th obviously there are some like niche journals that publish a lot of stuff like this or whatever, but there's, there, yeah, there, there's, when it comes to campus activism and everything wrong with cap campus activism today, it's pretty hard to blame any of that on these thinkers from May 68, like Foucault and Derrida, who were critical of all this shit and trying their best to like understand the context in which the, like this kind of performative, but also, yeah, jackboot, not going anywhere, kind of, you know, just playing within the system, but while saying you're against it kind of stuff was going on. So it's like, they were kind of, they were against that. And like Adorno from the Frankfurt school, you know, famously called the cops on students who were shutting him down and all of his, and he's like, and everyone's always like, you'd never call the cops. And he's like, he's like, look, I'm very popular. People want to hear what I have to say. And they know that if they want to get into the paper, the way that they're going to get into the paper is by coming and shutting me down. That's all it is. It's an attention stunt. These kids are acting like they're in a revolutionary moment. This is not a revolutionary moment. They're acting like they live in an oppressed country where there's like an actual, you know, colonial struggle right now. They're not, and it isn't. This is LARPing. It's ridiculous. It's pseudo activism, right? And so it's funny that Peterson doesn't know that. <laughs> like, you know, a fucking Deleuze was getting uh, canceled by Badu. Like they go shout him down and everything like that. So like this stuff goes way back, but it, it, it doesn't come from these theorists. These theorists were trying to understand the conditions that were making people, especially students, so fucking stupid, right? Like, yeah, so. Yeah, I, I, you know, I, I could go on about that. And it's, it's, you know, it's important you bring up Peterson because, so that was my two, you know, perspectives on, on what theory was. And I guess you could throw anarchism, like, you know, sort of pontificating on how we're going to, like, build an anarchist state. You could throw that in there, too, right? And, you know, I had all, I, I, I had all sorts of people that would throw this shit at me whenever I first, like, you know, made my YouTube channel. Like, everybody was so eager to, like, radicalize me into their favorite little cult. I don't know why I'm like a token for people. They're like, man, if we can just convince that Faraday guy, it's going to like validate the whole project. I don't know. I don't, I don't know what that's about. Caleb, um, Caleb, that's why I had to bring you on was so you could validate theory. <laughs> yeah. It's like, if you, if I can get him to say that he, I, I feel narcissistic saying that, but that's how people treat me. It's like they, I've even had, I've had people in the far right. Now I guess it makes more sense why they would do it. But I had a lot of experiences where pretty prominent figures on the far right would like be in my DMs, like trying to re-radicalize me. I'm like, dude, I don't know how many times I got to say this to you. I'm not gonna become a racist again. Like, <laughs> I I don't know how I, else I can say it to you. Like, you could you could you could convince me of so many things, but you're not gonna convince me of that. So just, just give up. But so. Uh, so, so my two perspectives, you know, philosophy or of, oh, and, and then philosophy. My perspective, of philosophy was, you know, totally like uh, uh, disconnected. Where there's, you know, people always, you know, you hear people like Stephen Hawking and people like that say philosophy's dead. And when you're in school, philosophy is like, oh, it's this pontificating about all these things that happened in the past. So it's like Aristotle, and it's like and you hear like about this guy named Kant, and you hear about like, and it's just like um okay so like maybe philosophy and then and then online when you go online i mean unless you go watch philosophy too which that channel doesn't even deal with philosophy anymore but no he, um, he made the move from teacher to influencer like full stop yeah 
Yeah, and the the other perspective you'll get, and this is what I think with a lot of people in these like online left circles is, am I am I correct in calling it analytic philosophy where they sit around and they're like, well, what are are you an ontological realist or are you a blah blah blah? And I'm like. And they just sit around like nerds, like determining, like, I think Destiny's the one that got this shit started and then Bosch like picked up on it where they're like, are you an ontological? I don't even, I don't want to sit here and say words. I don't, I don't understand. But like, that's, that's how they talk. What is that? Is that like the analytic philosophy? What the hell is that? They, they treat philosophy like it's a math equation. Okay. Yeah. So it, it I, so I, the connection between Vosh Destiny and analytic philosophy is, uh, I'm not sure about that. See, I think that they watch... Um, who the fuck is that guy? There's a guy who went and had a couple of debates with Vosh, and I think he's probably been on Destiny. And uh, he's got a smaller smaller Twitch channel. Uh, anyway, he's like a grad student or something like that, and he does analytic philosophy. And he went on there and was telling... Vosh that Vosh had no basis for his morality and that he, you know, and it was actually like a, it was pretty funny. Like everyone was so upset. Like the audience was so mad. They thought he was being elitist for doing this, but he was just like, I was actually, oh, it's bath boy, Rem the bath boy. Yeah. I, you know, and it's classic analytic philosophy stuff. And so I would not have any doubt that they hate watch him and that they take some notes while they do so. And there's probably a few more people in that milieu little network that I don't even know about. Uh, so yeah, but we also live in America, you know, and so it's like the Anglo-Saxon, uh, British empiricist, uh, logical positivist, uh, analytic philosophy milieu is really what we have here. But then we also have like a dose of pragmatism on the side. And so that's, that's the American scene in academia, or at least here's the thing, at least that's what, that's what the scene was. Uh, arguably the scene's been changing um, you get people who will say that this division between analytic and continental philosophy is obsolete now. You'll get people who say that that was just a thing in the 70s and 80s. In the Cold War, I would point out. And so really, it was through the Cold War that this number-crunching kind of logical, super granular um, approach to philosophy that often you're like, okay, I don't see how this could have any implication on my life or on society at large, right? Uh, that's when it really took the fore was during the the persecution of philosophy in the Soviet bloc and the persecution of philosophy under uh, McCarthyanism, really. And so uh, any social theorists or anybody who really wants to talk about the good life, which gets you into complicated questions about truth, tr justice, you know, but at this larger context, like that kind of stuff gets persecuted in that kind of a climate. And it's I know, I know, actually, you know, if, if someone tells me their main man is like Whitehead or Husserl or, or uh, Spinoza, right, like when, when it comes to the kind of stuff that they study, that's how I know that they are very averse to politics. <laughs> like they're, they're doing the kind of philosophy they can avoid politics with, but at the same time, like at least the stuff that I just listed, you know, it, it still gets into some of this bigger, like how the, how things really work. But when you're talking about like Quine and Kripke and uh, kind of like Birch Russell and Frege and uh, even Wittgenstein, early for, early Wittgenstein. They don't like later Wittgenstein. Um, that's the continental scene. And that's, yeah, that's where, that's where the, that's where the, 
So, so what I was saying though is that Vosh and Destiny, even if it's not like they're they're hate watching, um, uh, and and taking notes from Rem the Bath Boy, they're still uh, in America. And so, if they did take a philosophy class, um, chances are there's two kinds of intro to philosophy classes you're you're likely to get in the United States. And obviously, there's really good intro classes that you can also get if you luck out. But the main one is going to be like it's the history of ideas. Uh, Plato had Socrates say something. Because you know Plato wrote the dialogues and Socrates was the character, so Plato Plato says something, and then Aristotle goes, "Yeah, but," and then says something else, and then you basically get like this sort of like it's these it's this rational versus this empiricist kind of thing, and it starts basically then, and then it goes through these different versions to modernity, and then you know you get uh, and then you'll talk about Hume and Kant, right? Yeah, and that's that's the that's the philosophy of ideas version as opposed to the it's like the logical problems version. It's like, let's talk about the trolley cart problem. Yeah, yeah, you get all the memes. Yeah. Let's talk about like being on a raft, and uh, and and now you're all starving to death, and you, and you what, what are you gonna do? Do you eat somebody? Who do you eat? How do you make this decision? You know, it's just like, or or you know, the Sorites paradox, or the ship of Theseus, you know, and so you know, and that's where you can talk about some logical fallacies and and you know, some basic critical thinking stuff. And, and so, you know, a lot of people, when they think of philosophy, it's, it's influenced by those two main tendencies. Though that, that second tendency, I kind of lump three things together, right? Because that's basically logic on, and ethics and contemporary analytic puzzles, which can be all bundled up in the same class, but then people might get one version of it. But yeah, so yeah, yeah, I, there you go. I, I, think, I think, yeah, that, that, you, you, that, that bundle you just put together there, that sums up pretty well the sort of like thing that Bosch, and, and I don't want to like sound like, oh, I'm like poo-pooing that, like, of course not, but like, you know, there's this like, yeah, you get the Vosh's online, you get these people online, so they, they know, they the, the, the hit you with the, the couple memes. Uh, the Socratic method, so they, they love calling things a Socratic method, especially post-contrapoints, because now everybody just calls everything a Socratic method. If I ask you <laughs> questions, I'm doing the Socratic method. And then they're always trying to figure out, am I a utilitarian or a deontologist? That's the word. That's the two? Oh, my God. The debate. And then and, and don't get started on how, how just how utilitarian everybody online is. I see it. Like, obviously, it has its place, but like every single debate has to be down between like, well, let's see who can pull out the most studies, and then let's see who can uh, weigh up, you know, the pros and cons, and then we'll see what's the best. And I'm like, you guys not see how like the many issues with this. First of all, where are these studies coming from? And I'm not like being a conspiracy theorist and saying, oh, the data is bad, but the data, like everything, comes from a certain pre like a starting place of like these are our assumptions these are what the things that we value and this is the way we see the world and then we're going to go off from here and it's you know i don't have to get down that rabbit hole but like um yeah i mean my that was my 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 sort of perspective on philosophy was that you have the old socratic you know those types of dudes which you know their, their good life questions are kind of like just been sidelined and then you've got like i don't know to me it just seems like old shit you know it just seems like old shit for most anybody that, that doesn't that's a layman it just seems like this old you know stuff that's not really relevant to today and then you have exposure to what what i'm just going to call analytic philosophy which is all the things that you described and so neither of those things ever really like 
I mean, you get into all that older stuff. I like learned about a bit about that in high school, and you you just sort of like you know it stops being interesting. And um, you know, I never read Nietzsche. I never I never read some of um, the, the the sort of people in the existentialist strain of thought and to me it's just like philosophy just didn't seem like it didn't seem as interesting as i as i now realize it is and i i didn't really make the connection between that stuff and theory like i didn't to really me, there, that, that connection wasn't really i don't know why but it just wasn't there to me like marx seemed like an economic nerd and i just when i thought of theory i thought of marx or i thought of this like postmodern identity politics shit and i just like, well, none of that really interests me, you know, um, not really throwing all like all of that down the toilet and saying it's irrelevant, but it just didn't really interest me. And um, I would say that that awareness started to change, but not in the way you might expect. Um, the way that it first started to change is with a channel on the far right. I don't want to name it because I don't want to give clout, but um, fair. Uh, it is a, it was one, it's, it, it's a Catholic YouTuber. I'll just say that much. And, um, dude talks about a lot of, um, I wouldn't say he talks about fear, but he talks about mold buck. And so I'm just going to take a drink. So for anybody in the chat, they're already seeing where this is going, sort of. So I came into this channel cause I was researching the far right, you know, I was trying to go deeper than I had went whenever I earnestly, you know, went through these circles. And so channels and I start watching this channel and he's talking about mold bug. And I'm like, who is this mold bug guy? And then the next thing he starts talking about is accelerationism. I'm like, what the fuck is that? And at the same time, I'm studying radicalization from this place of like hanging out with all these like, you know, counter care and CVE academic types and they sort of talk about similar things they'll talk about accelerationism although they talk about more like you know insurrect violent insurrectionary accelerationism and all these things were just sort of floating around and I would hear the word postmodernism a lot and I didn't understand what the hell any of this stuff meant it was just all random signs to me and then I started going into the mold bug stuff more get introduced to mold bug then you get intru introduced to land I started and, and mind you i'm i don't have any left-wing channels no left-wing channels were coming up so anything that i'm hearing about these topics is coming from people on the far right and i start realizing i start looking around i'm like wow more and more people on the far right are talking about these guys and then gzek pops up you know and it's all people on the far right talking about these guys and at first you know, I'll just be honest about my, my initial reactions. Again, going back to what I said earlier, I've never been tempted to go back to racism. And I don't think I've ever really been tempted to go back to the right at all. But a lot of the questions that a lot of these people were, were posing after reading Zizek and after reading Land and after reading Moldbug, it really started to disturb me. And I... You know, I had this experience of where, you know, people on the left, they had a lot of really good answers for the social, for, for sort of like the uh, social and cultural shit that the right would bring up. You know, the right would talk about 
oh, the West is going to collapse and there's, you know, this cycle of collapse or, oh, you know, there's this race science thing or, oh, there's this demographic, demographic collapse thing. And I think people on the left, you know, a lot of these like bread tube debunkers, they do a pretty good job of like going through that stuff and showing how um, a lot of that stuff is, is, you know, blown out of proportion. But there was, right, like, like it's not, it's method. like, it's not hard to, to like deconstruct the idea of the West, right? Yeah. Right. It's not, it, or, you know, there's, which obviously like when you just kind of assume that there's some kind of a hegemon, a hegemonic West, right? It, it's so easy to just rip this to shreds because Marx is a part of the West, you know, and then all of these people disagree with one another in fundamental ways. And a lot yeah. of times these thinkers who get, who become figureheads were resisting empire and resisting censorship and being persecuted. And so there's not like this, you know, uh, you talk about Moldbug. It's funny, like, uh, you know, because that's Yarvin. He talks about, you know, actually, so there's this, he, there's, you know, because he was the edgy race realist back in the back in the day, you know, and then he became, you know, an anonymous blogger or whatever. And now he's a public or whatever. But, you know, he, uh, he, I think something that he said was that he, one of the reasons that he really went for that monarchy shit, like, oh, neo, neo monarchists and all this. Neo cameral state or whatever the fuck he calls it. Yeah. yeah. And I think, I think if I remember right, he said that, you know, he just, he thinks that, uh, a real thinker or a scholar actually had more freedom back then than they do now. And that, you know, cause then you just have to placate the King, say, God save the King. You don't have to worry about the mob. And like, there's this part of me that's just like wishes that that was true. But that's one of the nice things about reading Foucault. Like, no people getting hang drawn and quartered, man. Like this is not a joke, you know, having to recant on shit discoveries that you've made or whatever, like having, having, uh, oh, because someone in a position of power changed their mind on something, things are being systematically destroyed in terms of like, yeah, knowledge. Uh, you know, it's, it's, you know, people might burn a book nowadays, but it's not being done systematically. Like it's so, yeah, it's, yeah, yeah, I mean, we could complain about liberal hegemony and we could complain that like, oh, they don't, you know, they, 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 they cut my tenure off at this college and they pushed me out of academia. It's like, yeah, I could see how that might even cause a lot of issues, but they didn't fucking draw and core to you because the king got paranoid. Like, you know, like they didn't. It, yeah, I, yeah. Um, Derrida Bode-Lacanian in the chat says all influencers must have their distorted influences inspected. Yarvin is influencing a lot of people. I mean, okay, so for me, it's like, it's not even about, like, I mean, that is a, that is a thing, obviously. He definitely has an influence. Uh, there's a lot of people who are doing things online who are hanging out together and going places, and he's there, and that's a thing. Like, he's a socialite. He's he's in the scene. People, you know, it's people... I, I, had, a, I had a friend... Uh, who was like, I met Yar, I met Curtis Yarvin at the thing I went to. It was like a Twitter, like all these people on Twitter went and uh, they hung out together. And, uh, I know Justin Murphy had Curtis Yarvin on his podcast and then, uh, and then was hanging out with all the people who were hanging out at the thing that I just was that I just referenced. But, you know, and, and then, you know, that's where you get the people talking about all this Peter Thiel money and, yeah. And there's this whole like kind of like edgy new right thing that's like 
that's not the same as the alt-right, or at least it's with a matured version of that or something like that. I don't know. They're, you put... they're post-rationalists. They're like, it's like this post-liberal, post-rationalist crowd. That's, I, 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 I have, you know, I have a conspiratorial brain, you know, it's just bred into me and I can go on my conspiratorial tangents about Teal. It's, as someone who studies this stuff, it's, it's hard to know how much influence the dude actually has. It's hard to know, like, how much he's actually doing. Um, there's just, I mean, that article that came out that you got, that everybody read, I mean, that was like, in terms of the picture of this, of this story, that's it. That's, that's pretty much all anybody knows. Well, which, um, what, the, the article about Peter, Peter Thiel's money or whatever? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, that's, that's the extent to which, you know, anybody really, like, knows, like, how involved he is. I just see a lot of the mold bug that, See, it depends on who you're talking about. I don't want to like go down this rabbit hole too much, but just briefly, like it, from from just like analyzing far right subcultures and spaces, it depends on like who you're talking about in terms of like who Moldbug is influencing, because he's definitely had his influence in terms that he's introduced like Carl Schmidt and shit to the far right, to like the dissident right as they call themselves now. They've actually sort of like coalesced into this broad umbrella term. Um, but unless you're just looking at the Justin Murphy crowd or the, you know, you got Alex Cachetta, she's another one that's like sort of like disaffected liberal post-rationalist, like, I don't know if you can say post-rationalist, well, no, kind of, cause they're like, they want to like, um, they're really like sort of like hyper-rationalists. Um, are, are they, do they, uh, do they also refer to themselves as neo-rationalists or the neo-rats or... Uh, no, I've never, uh, I think I have, I, I think that crowd is probably adjacent, although I don't hear that term too much, Okay. but you know, it's, um, it, it's, it, it's, it's really just sort of like, there's this sort of like react, like it's, it's like disaffected liberals that are like reactionary curious. And these people seem, those people in Murphy, who you could probably also sort of include in that crowd, they seem the most interested towards Moldbug, but Really, like your hard actors that would have been in a mold bug like a year or two ago, like two, three years ago, um, those people they've moved on from mold bug. They call them cringe. You know, a lot of people don't like mold bug. Um, that you know, I, I've noticed a lot of people on the far right. They really do not like his concept of the cathedral because they don't like being told that the thing that's oppressing them is decentralized. They really want to be told that the thing that's oppressing them is Jews. They, they like they don't want to be told otherwise. They want to be told that Klaus Schwab and the Jews are together and they're they're on the job. They're on the they are on the case. You know, they get really upset when you're like, you know, actually, they're because I think Car- Yarvin's idea of the cathedral, while not totally original, it, it does work as a sort of an explanation of power and hegemony where there is this sort of like communication between institutions and they sort of like. You know, they look at each other and they kind of look at their reflections and then, you know, they kind of move forward. Um, you know, maybe I haven't read Yarvin, so I'm sure he's trying to say more than just that. But well, just that, just saying that, they hate that. It's something, something more that we can get into, though, is just the fact that this is like, this was already done by Louis Althusser, right? This was already done in ideological and repressive state apparatuses like this was already you know what i mean and also the whole the whole concept of the professional managerial class and the the this whole 
and that 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 right there is a fraught term. And what I'm demarcating is not just people who use that term, but people who are adjacent to using some similar terms that are trying to get at the same thing, which is basically just like we don't even deal with the ruling class. We deal with the people who we were in school with who rose to the top of their class, not because they're geniuses or good people, but because they're really good at placating authority and getting A's on things and not living outside of the dictates of arbitrary authority and, 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 and capital ultimately, which now they serve as role models and influencers and rationalizers who perpetuate the legitimation narratives of the system. And in, in the main two versions of that, there's a right version of that and there's a left version of that. And the right version of that is uh, well, it is a meritocracy. It's just being messed up by X, Y, and Z groups and or, you know, taxes and or whatever. And then on the left, it's obviously, well, it's it. They say it's not a meritocracy and they'll say that there's a systemic injustice in play. But all of the talk of marginalization and privilege, the subscript to it is that the people who aren't uh, in the upper classes uh, who should be, the only reason that they're not is because of uh, the, the, the unjust system in terms of privilege and marginalization, they're not, you know, their systemic analysis never challenges the existence of poverty itself. Not, not in any serious way. And that's where identity politics comes in because it's not, it's not about poverty. Um, it, it's not about the working class. It's about, well, this person who's kind of like me shouldn't have been in that situation except that they're brown. Because this person could have done really well in their classes and then they could have gotten this job that I got. That's a completely different way of thinking about injustice. It's, it's, a, it's a, you know, but anyway, so, but I'm, I'm just saying, yeah, the cathedral or you have Mark Fisher talking about the vampire castle. Everyone's kind of getting at the same thing. But it is funny. It got popularized as a cathedral by, by Yarvin. I just don't think he's got really necessary for that. Tucker talks about it on this fucking show. Even before he had him on there, he was saying that. And, you know, um, it, it's... Yeah, it's made its way out. I think Silicon Valley, I think if anybody should be concerned about the influence of someone like Goldbug, it should be these billionaires out in Silicon Valley. Like, I, Musk has read Goldbug. He's aware of it. You know, there's this guy out there named Mark Andreas. He's like a big, you know, big, uh, big head billionaire. He used to go to Clubhouse all the time and post these big things. He's going to be blocked on Twitter. Um, never interact with him. <laughs> I think that is probably where people should be concerned. And even then, it's to me, it's not even like mold bugs an issue, but it's that he is giving them a program in which to. I mean, when I first heard about mold bug three years ago, I tried sounding it off to the, the, the counter extremism world. I was like, guys, this shit's going to invade elite circles because that's what they're saying that they're doing. They are saying that they are trying. I mean, Justin Murphy was saying that three years ago. We're going to take this and we're going to go into culture. I'm going to move to LA and we're going to infiltrate culture. And we're going to infiltrate, you know, the elite circles and we're going to we're going to upstart society that way. And it's, and, I mean, that's 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 what they're functionally trying to do. Anyway, to well, get back to things. So I don't, not, yeah, yeah well, we should we. Well, I don't want to come back to that specific point because it's a side. My my thing is just to add on to it and just to say, I don't know fully what it is Justin Murphy's doing. I don't have a problem with him per se. He's done some cool shit. Oh, I don't I don't mean to suggest right. that Justin I think that that uh I wouldn't I don't think that Justin isn't like engaged in some plot or something. I right. think that was more because the, the the sort of Catholic YouTubers they had the same sort of imagination that like 
because they all believe in elite theory, right? If they don't believe in the Jews, then they believe in elite theory. And their whole thing is like, well, damn, the problem is we just need better elites. If we could just get better elites. And so, I mean, if, if, if anybody is like functionally, structurally like engaging to do that, it would be Teal, right? It wouldn't be like Murphy who runs his YouTube channel. Well, oh, and he does. I didn't know that. So the the one thing I was going to say about it, though, is just that you know, um, it's not a, it's not restricted to the to the to the right um, as far as like a strategy for cultural hegemony to focus sure. on to focus on the education of elites. Now, while the Cokes have been doing this for fucking ever, um, you know, so is Buffett and Soros. Like that's not a joke. They obviously are, yeah. at, and it's not like every billionaire is involved in culture war, but there's a handful of them that are deeply invested in it. The thing is, what I was going to point out, though, is just that it's also just an accelerationist tendency. Left or right accelerationism, it doesn't matter, because if you read Inventing the Future by uh, Cernichick and Williams, um, and they're left accelerationists, um, they have a whole chapter on how neoliberals got cultural hegemony and what the steps that they took. And they're basically saying, we can learn from them. And so... I, that's why I was I, I raised Justin Murphy to say I don't know what role he's playing or what he thinks his alliances are or whatever, but it is accelerationist across the board, and I know that he's just in dialogue with the accelerationists in general. That's what I was trying to say, but yeah, okay. anyway, yeah. Well, that's 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 a good clarification to help yeah. you understand things. Yeah. So, um, um, so, okay. So, I find Moldbug on these channels, you know, and. Again, I uh, I never felt um, tempted back to the right, but they would start addressing things that I've never quite heard the left talk about, or, you know, the left that I was exposed to talk about in a coherent way. You know, questions about, like, power. Where does power come from? And how is power being wielded in the current world? Or questions, you know, eventually you get into land, and land starts describing capitalism in, like, a completely different way than I'd ever been exposed to before, right? So we start getting into, like, accelerationist territory where he's describing capitalism as this... Well, it's land. The dude does math, but we'll just go with it. It's this self-sorting AI system, which is reconfiguring society and flattening everything out and then reassembling itself into a, a singularity, which will transform everything, and that we need to accelerate capitalism so that we can get to the singularity. And I think, like... Just thinking about capitalism as like an AI to me, like this sort of like optimization system that has a sort of benign, you know, blind intelligence to it. And that it isn't just, there's this analysis of people on the right. And I understand that like an actual Marxist wouldn't talk this way or analysis on like, you know, sort of like popular left circles of the stupid eat the rich meme and this like, capitalism is just greed and it's just the pursuit of profit even though corporations when you start to get into it corporations don't even work that way anymore corporations profits not the singular kpi you know key performance indicator that that they're running on they're running on you know the longevity of the corporation and the the brand and there's all these other it's just you talked i think like it, it really made me and then you know you, you Again, I'm getting most of my information from bread tubers, right? And so I looked at bread tubers, and it's like they're not aware. They're not even aware of these questions. They're not aware of thinking about things in this way. And it's like to them, it's like we just got to do them a revolution, and 
we're just going to eliminate capitalism and it's just all going to be great guys and to me it all of this is really fucking with my head and i'm starting to wonder by watching all these far-right channels that are talking about all this theory stuff i'm like is it is it even possible are they are we just fucked like and and i know i'm sounding incoherent but it, it, you know i'm trying to recall a time which to me was incoherent um you know, I start like going, you know, so you get into land, later on you get into Dugan. And that's what another thing I was going to say. If, if people should be worried about like what extremist circles on the far right are interested in, it's fucking Dugan of all things. That's what they're interested in. Yeah. It's the same thing the tankies right now are interested in. This idea of multipolarity and Dugan and, and all that shit. Um, not Moldbug. Everybody looks at Moldbug and they're like, you're fucking married. Um, I would I would love me some multipolarity if it didn't involve just a multipolarity of empires that were going to yeah, just actually right. probably accelerate capital capital's destruction of everything you know it's 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 it's, it's uh, but you know when you when you when you read the fourth uh the fourth political theory the the shit he has to say about cultural relativism and how we ought to think about other peoples and all of this it's like yeah, that sounds really great. But then you realize what he means is like, so we just need to invade all these other countries and do all this. It's, like, yeah. it's, it's really weird how you can, that's, that's why I don't trust him. And, the, you know, so I, I had someone in the comments of one of my videos the other day say that Dugan's got his, uh, there's philosopher Dugan and then there's, you know, like this uh, political ideology. Du no, that's fucking bullshit. He's, he says it repeatedly that, philosophy that is not meant to change the world and organize people and mobilize troops is not uh, a philosophy. It's not a, it, the philosophy has to be an ideology. And, and so for me, Wait. what? Go ahead. Yeah. For me, philosophy and uh, this kind of ideology brain shit are two a hundred percent antithetical things though, of course, and this is the, this is the thing though, of course, um, Anybody who's trying to do, uh, you know, some new ideology or some new spin on it, some new rash or some no some new legitimation narrative for some kind of power mobilization regime change thing, whatever, they're always going to go to philosophy because that's where everything starts. That's where the good shit is, um, and 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 they're going to go cherry picking through it to patch together their own shit, and it's going to make them sound smart. They're going to sound smart. They're, they're going to be based. And that, so base is the opposite of cringe. Well, for me, I always I'll use it with the triple. It's a triple entendre because I also mean historically and theoretically based. And, the, and so you do sound a lot more based when you've got, you know, so, some basis in the life of the mind. And so, you know, so, Dugan and, and, and Yarvin are great examples of people who, yeah, they, they, they're, they're going to hit the books because they want to sound smart. Because they actually need to sell themselves. They don't have cultural hegemony to ride off of, which is ultimately going to be my thesis throughout this conversation, which is the reason you're not going to find any profound shit about capital coming from the left today is because, I mean, okay, you're, there is some. I'm not going to say there's not some. But the, some. but the reason most of it's focusing on, well, your dad says capitalism is good for this reason by the barbecue, but your dad doesn't understand that actually, you know, there's other things to live for than being a greedy asshole. Hmm. Because that's cringe, you know, and then being all ironic the whole time. Like, you know, if you want like a, you know, the, 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 
the reason the profound shit about you know coming from the life of the mind and also from systemic critique and stuff like this about power it the reason it's not usually coming from a lot of the more mainstream left uh characters is because they do have a kind of cultural hegemony when it comes to media that they can kind of write off of and they can kind of presuppose it and so they don't have to they don't have to do ha oh, half as no, much no, work no 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 there is no liberal hegemony. The, con the conservatives are in control. It's the George Bush years forever, and it will always be the George Bush years, even after the revolution, because we need it to be. We need it to be the George Bush years eternally so that we can complain. I just can't. That's one thing that the right, like, they bang their head against the wall. They're like, we're not in charge, you motherfuckers. We're having a coup right now. We want the power back. And the left's like, no, you guys are in control. It's almost like a gaslighting, and it's like a like a stop hitting yourself, stop hitting yourself. I don't know. I don't know where that tendency comes from, but like it, it meant when you're kind of in the lead in certain ways. Like, sure, the rights got a lot of power. They got Trump elected. They got a lot of seats, and they got half the government. But that's not where all the power comes from. And I'd argue that like the most important aspects of power don't come from those places anymore. Um, uh, uh, so, but what you're saying, it, 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 it helps me wrap up a point yeah. of this section of the story where I think the thing that terrified me most about these thinkers like Land and Moldbug and, and some of the, uh, the, these sort of aggregators, people like Dugan, what terrified me was I was like, why the fuck do these guys seem so much smarter and they seem to have like a coherent like worldview and ideology and strategy to move forward. And it seems like I can picture it. It seems realistic. It seems possible. We're not dealing with like alt-right Richard Spencer fucking broke bitch white nationalism, which is not a threat to anything, by the way. It will be used to fuel a coup, a far-right coup. Sure. But that's not the fucking threat. Like, and it's, it's also not some like us making the upteenth fucking video essay about Jordan Peterson or Ben Shapiro. It's like, these dudes are like down in the mud and they're like getting shit done. And why do they sound so much smarter than all the people that are supposed to like actually have went to college and fucking learn the shit? I know why. I know why, but you know, by these dudes, it. by these dudes, you did not mean Shapiro and, uh, no, no. When I say these dudes that seem to have like a coherent strategy and they're moving forward with things, okay. Uh, we're talking about Moldbug. We're talking about Dugan. We're talking yeah. about. I mean, Land doesn't. I'll throw Land in there too, even though he's not really doing the same thing that Dugan and Moldbug are doing, like whatsoever. Um, actually, his boomer posting confuses the fuck out of me. But, um, I, I. It, it, it wouldn't come till much later that I realized what was going on. At this point, I'm just kind of in the woods and I'm like, no, these guys sound based and the left sounds cringe. What's happening? And then I just, I'm like, I have to keep learning. I have to keep understanding. So I just kept going through it. Just kept digging through this crap, just watching more and more stuff. And every time that they would say a name, I'd go Google that name. I'd go learn more about that name. So like, Old book says something about Carl Schmidt. All right, let's go fucking use Carl Schmidt. Okay, let's read about Carl Schmidt. And just very slowly, and it was almost like there was like this scaffolding, like stepping up the layers. And, you know, it, you know, accelerate the timeline a little bit. And we're closer to January 6th now. 
and I've been listening to a lot of this stuff. And I'm still trying to figure out just quite what's going on, why they're how they're doing this, why it's working, it, like what it seems to be like, you know, in terms of like your imagination, right? Like why does it seem to be so coherent and seem to be so much more really what it seemed like is it seemed like they had they were describing reality more accurately and more honestly. Is, is what it sort of felt, is, was the experience of what it felt like. And I think at some point, I just sort of realized that these people were just aggregating. They were taking all these other philosophers that for some reason I had never heard of and I never hear anybody talk about, and they were aggregating them. Um, and they were aggregating them into a sort of coherency. Um, now I think as, as we discussed, they are doing that. I mean, I would say it's Seneca, right? And Dugan's the worst offender of this, right? Dugan, where he's just like, I'm a postmodernist. Why are you a postmodernist, Dugan? Well, because truth is malleable. Why do you think truth is malleable? Because I want it to be. Why do you want it to be? Because the left, the, or the, the West has, you know, liberal global head, you know, hegemony. And I have to defeat it, and I need a competing narrative and a competing vision. So we're going to be based orthodox trads, and we're going to be postmodernists, and we're going to believe in multipolarity. It's like, wait, why do you believe all this again? Because I want to. Right. And everything is just about power. And I was like, right. I think Dugan actually reading, understanding more about Dugan is what helped peel back the curtain on what the project, you know, what was happening for me. Yeah. So. Mm-hmm. Makes what a lot of sense. Yeah, it makes a lot of sense to me. Keep going. So, then, you know, for a lot of this stuff, you know, the accelerationism stuff was sort of interesting. And you go through a period where you sort of ponder these accelerationist futures, or you sort of ponder, like, the effect that technology is having. Because that was another big thing, is I never questioned, like, technology as a force. You know, you just think of, like, technologies as, like, neutral tools you just use. And all this stuff was like kind of reframing everything for me. And then get, you know, I, at some point I stumbled across the, and this is like, I'm still in the fucking woods. I'm still confused. I still am having the hell, a hell of a time trying to piece this stuff together. And I wasn't exactly like trying to go and read stuff. Cause I wouldn't even know where to begin if it were to start reading. I don't fucking, where would I start? Would I have to go back and read Aristotle? Like, do I have to read through the entire fucking history of philosophy to get to this point? I don't have time for that. And so I just kept running through the dark. And then eventually I stumbled across the channel and this fucking old, you know, this nice Southern Texan walks out on the screen and he's like, hello, folks. And, you know, it's Rick Roderick. And he just starts <laughs> breaking this shit down like slick. And he just starts breaking this stuff together piece by piece. And I'm like, and it's blowing my fucking mind because for the first time ever, I mean, you know, now I'm understanding why Jordan Peterson's so full of shit and like why every fucking thing that he's saying is like completely wrong. And like, but not just like, well, because Peterson just like, you know, like everybody just like says Peterson, like descriptive and prescriptive statements and, and he's a sexist, but like to actually understand like how he was misusing like all of those thinkers. And then that really started to open me up. And also seeing Roderick, a guy who's not a fucking fascist or a neo-fascist or a neo-monarchist or any of that shit and being able to elucidate on all of this stuff, it made me realize, I'm like, 
wait a second. So this stuff isn't like just some sort of weird far right interpretation or or some weird like far right literature. They're co-opting this stuff in a really cynical way. And and, and you know, Roderick just really helped lay it out for me. A lot of it gave a lot of context to it. And I came to a couple conclusions. One was that, yes, the far right is using this stuff cynically. Two, the far right is way ahead of the left. And we're talking about this sort of intellectual far right. We're not talking about Spencer or whatever the fuck. We're talking about this like these intellectual heavyweights. And three, the reason that they, they're way ahead of the left is because something has happened to the left. Like, there's there's been an occurrence. <laughs> there's been... Something's happened, and that that was you know another path that I had to figure out. I was like, "What the fuck happened?" And then I realized that, oh, you know, you start getting into Mark Fisher, and you realize like, oh, these motherfuckers got recuperated into the system, and all this like really like sort of radical stuff just got sort of like not taught, not really taught. It's kind of like what you were talking about with a lot of these continental philosophers, where you go in to a university class and they'll teach you they'll teach you you know your philosophy 101 about aristotle socratic method all that sort of shit then they'll do what we're describing at the beginning of this conversation is analytic philosophy and then that's sort of like what they teach you it seems and like unless you really like get into philosophy and go become irrelevant somewhere you don't ever really get into the good stuff you don't get into like you know my personal favorite is baudelaire right the biggest influence on me has been, been john baudelaire you don't get into that shit baudelaire I like how I like how Rick Rogers says it. Baudrillard. Yeah. Baudrillard. <laughs> but like, you know, I realize that it, it is because of a sort of like liberal cultural hegemony that you just don't hear about this stuff. And you start to realize like it's not just an alt-right pipeline that people get sucked into. There is like very predictable pipelines that intersect our culture. And people just run along those tracks. And so, like, if I were to start going to Vosh, for example, and start, like, talking about some of this shit, he wouldn't even know what the hell I'm talking about. I've literally had the experience of talking about some of this stuff with people, and they tell me I'm schizo-posting or something. And trust me, I'll, I'm being, you know, I, I, I know how to be coherent when I'm not trying to sit here and tell a story. But, like, you'll have people just tell you, you're schizo-posting, or I've never heard of that, or what the hell does that have to do with anything? Um, it's everybody. It's some the, the left doesn't understand this shit, and the right doesn't understand this shit. And it just, re, you know, it yeah, it just I realized just how much of our thought has been sort of like constrained and limited, and just that there were different ways of thinking about all of this stuff. You know, then you start reading a bit of Zizek, and you start realizing like, why the fuck does everybody hate Zizek all the time? Because now I'm realizing that they all talk shit about him. He's, so it just to me, it seemed the sense that I get is that this stuff has an ability to really be critical of the system, even though the post-structuralists, a lot of them like and you can help explain this to me. But a lot of them seem like they 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 gave up on a socialist project. Um, I get that vibe heavily from like Baudrillard, who just seems like he, he gave up on the project. But at the same time, it seems like that stuff has the most radical potential to to really critique the system, you know? Uh, 
Yeah, I'm, I'm going to let you respond. I can go on, though. Well, let's take a second to uh, touch on the fact that the chat blew up at the mention of Rick Roderick. It looks like Dangerous Maybe, a.k.a. Michael Downs, is in the chat. Good to see him here. Uh, like Swoletariat said, Base Rick in all caps. And Time Energy Wanter said, Daddy. And, uh, yeah, uh, this is... Uh, <laughs> Swoletariat said, listening to Americans pronounce French names is my 9-11... Uh, <laughs> yeah well fuck you know it, it, it's it's i'm all for anglicizing things uh in in, in the most uh chauvinist like america you know ignorant american way possible because otherwise you sound like a pretentious asshole because yeah i can say baudrillard when it looks like baudrillard but Am I going to say fucking, and I'll, and I, there was a time when I said Nietzsche and then I, I met a German person and I was like, is it actually Nietzsche? And he said, yeah, it's Nietzsche. And I was so, okay, I started saying Nietzsche. And then someone told me I was pretentious, but I kept doing it anyway. But then someone corrected me on Kierkegaard and said, it's Kierkegaard. And I was like, nah, fuck you. I don't give a shit. I will never say Kierkegaard. You can suck my dick. And then, uh, when it came to, uh, Elphisair, I've been hanging out with uh, Master Signified Bodies a lot. Everyone should subscribe to him. This motherfucker's always like, El Toussaint instead of El Toussaint. And I'm like... I heard somebody pronounce uh, Sartre like, correctly once, and I literally wanted to puke in my fucking lap. Like, <laughs> it's like, why are you doing that right now? Don't do that ever again. I I always kind of do that Sartre thing, you know, Sartre, but so no, that's not what they did. They really gave it a, they really gave it a go. And I was just like, please do not do that. Ever you, again. you get the same thing when people do Lacan. It's like, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. it's yeah. like, what the fuck did you just say? Lacan. <laughs> okay. Do you say croissant? Do you say croissant? <laughs> no, you say, I'm going to go get a croissant. Shut the fuck up. Yeah. I just. There are some words that you need to make an effort towards, and then there's there is just like there's a level to things you just need to give up and accept who you are. You gotta pick your fucking battles. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. That's. Um, so I wanted to talk about one thing, and I wanted to. I don't want to just blame all of this on analytic philosophy and the Cold War. Uh, there's also because uh, you actually, it's funny, you you kind of have this philosophy and theory are two separate things in your mind. You didn't really see, like for me, for me and Mikey, like it's theory and philosophy. We always say philosophy and theory, theory and philosophy, they're interchangeable. Um, and part of my problem is to say what the difference actually is. And there's this fantastic quote, Michael, if you're still in the chat, you should drop that quote in the chat where he's basically saying what philosophy is. We talked about it in a stream recently, the one called Don't Tell Us Who to Read or Who Not to Read, uh, where we're defending reading people like Nick Land and shit like that. Um, you know, and basically the, what you basically get, your synopsis of the whole thing about capital through him, straight up, that's basically the synopsis Michael gives. It's a little bit more elaborate when he does it because it goes for like five minutes maybe, but you know, it's, it's the same thing. And so, um, so good job. You get an A on your, on your, what is capital to Nick Land test? I'm good at, I'm good at in a very ADHD nonlinear fashion, like slapping concepts into my constellation. And then I have to like go keep going through. And then later on, you know, that's, that's one thing that happened when I was, you know, going through my breakdown, you know, when you go through a breakdown, it's like your brain just, it ramps up. Dude. You go into fight or flight. 
Um, and uh, that's what happened. That constellation lit up. The connections between them. I was like, that's what Baudelaire has to do with this, has to do with that, has to do that. And that's how it all connects to radicalization. That's how you got that dissertation, you know, that uh, you and I have been talking through. You oh, your, your, but, disser um, your dissertation. Yeah, we'll, and we'll, we'll get into yeah, that, I'm my, sure. Yeah. Well, and but, so, um, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I, I've, I've, like, if, if at any point someone says, like, you know, this, this seems very, very nonlinear, it's because that's been the experience for me. That's why I'm trying to slow down now. That's why I'm talking to you, and I've been slowing down. I'm like, all right, well, what do I fucking read now? You know, I put together this, like, hodgepodge in my head, mostly from bad sources. What do I do from here? But anyway, we don't have to get, you know, second into that now. But, like, you were saying that, um, well, I was saying that there, in, in this quote that I was hoping Mikey could share, um, it was clear that Slavoj was using theory and philosophy uh, interchangeably. And I think that that does occur as well, especially for those people. It's funny because a lot of those theorists were like, philosophy's dead. Now we're doing something else. Uh, but Slavoj and Badu are a couple of the people from that generation who were like, nah, this is just, nah, it's not dead, whatever. Th to their credit. But, um, you know, so for me, when I said earlier that philosophy and ideology are juxtaposed, um, well, the reason was because philosophy... And where I'm going to be getting back to in a second here is talking about why it's not just analytic philosophy's fault or whatever. And, and I want to talk about the American scene a little bit more and what, what causes the split for you. Like the fact that you had that impression that there is this split between philosophy and theory. Um, but just, you know, for me, though, what is what is philosophy? You know, it's primarily three questions, which is like, what's real? How do we know? And how ought I, how ought I to act or the bigger, the better way of putting that is like, what is the good life? Right? So what's real? How do we know? What's the good life? Right? That's the real shit. Like those are the three fundamental questions. Um, you know, and, 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 you know, because this, because these, but at the same time, it's not just three questions. It's also a doubting stance or a skeptical posture or a, or a, or a skeptical way of looking at doxa. So doxa is, for a lot of philosophers, juxtaposed to philosophy. Doxa is a Greek word for common sense, if I'm not mistaken, right? I don't know Greek, but, um, you know, so common sense, basically what people take to be reality is what, something that philosophy always starts out with questioning. But this quote, um, fuck, I'm just going to send Mikey a message because I would like to come back to it. We're not going to read it right now, because I'm, but I'm going to send him this message right now. I'm just going to say voice message over chat. A, you should share with me that Master Signifier Zizek quote. Okay, all right. But basically, for you know, for him, it's suspending Master Signifiers. Um, for Deleuze and Guattari, it's the invention of concepts. But not just like the arbitrary, like, oh, here's a concept, that's cool. No, it's like, okay, so the sciences are showing us like these things that do not fit into our current picture of the world and our experiences of the world no longer match the stories that people were telling us about how the world works. Okay, so somewhere between all of that stuff, the job of the philosopher is to say, all right, we need better concepts. If we don't have a better system of concepts for understanding the way that things work, we're going to keep working in this stupid black and white binary. We're going to keep working in like all of these assumptions about you know that are just juxtaposed between subject and objects that presuppose 
you know, su uh, subjects as opposed to a world of objects that stay, you know, and, and that with with that is that's a good example of like one of those kind of presuppositions that brings with it a host of what Heidegger called pseudo problems. Right. Because he saw a lot of what academic philosophy was doing was like this sort of industry of dealing in pseudo problems. Um, and obviously, like people will have their own things to say about what Heidegger might have been doing and whether that was I, I would defend it. I would say that he has some real fundamental questions. Um, I don't I, you know, it's, that's actually been an ongoing kind of conversation on this channel in the last like week is the value of his philosophy. So I just did a lecture on why I like being in time and think it's an important book. Then I brought Chris Catrone on. He said, don't waste your time with Lacan and Zizek and Heidegger and all these guys just go to the real shit. And by that, he mainly meant Marx and Lenin. But also, if you're really going to waste your time, go to Kant and, and, and Freud. Don't, don't waste it on these other guys. And for, and I, you know, for me, it's not an either or. I'm committed to being a thinker. And I think being a, committed to being a thinker is like hard mode for life. I'm never going to stop. And I am, I have to read them all and I have to read them to read them means three times. You can't just read them once, you know, so you shouldn't even have an opinion on one of these fucking guys until you've read them three times. And like, that's insane. Now, most people are going to say, well, that's not realistic. Well, you know, I'm, I'm doing it with audiobooks. you know what I mean? While working. Um, uh, so these same people who are like, you know, we need to keep everything short and succinct and to the point for the workers who are usually PMC activists, uh, don't realize that we live in a time when a lot of workers are tuning in with their ears um, and listening to long-form content. And so for me, like the question of the audio revolution and what's enabled with it is a big thing. And so the experiments I'm doing while working at Amazon right now, listening to audiobooks, big part of it's like, what can we do? So the, the, you know, so what is philosophy? It's, it's challenging doxa. It's this, this, this skeptical, it, it takes for, it takes kind of for granted a hostile position vis-a-vis -vis or in respect to common sense and whatever it is that they're telling us to believe or how things work. And, and then it asks those fundamental questions and it, and it will take those fundamental questions to the people who supposedly have answers to those questions today, who are usually like ideologues, sophists, you know, uh, you know, snake oil salesmen, people who are here to tell you, oh, I've got the fix. I've got the fix to make you feel at home in the world again. It's just that simple. I've, it's, it's just that simple. I'm going to play that when we do a bathroom break on the stream, probably in a little bit here. Um, I'll, I'm going to play that. I don't know if you, have you seen my remix where he says that? Mm -hmm. Okay. Well, I'll play my, my Roderick, uh, remix and it's actually called like, it's not that simple. I think might even be the name of the video. Yeah. But they're selling us a, a fix to feel at home again in the world. But then this is where you bring in Nietzsche. It's not just so that you can feel at home. It's so that you can regain a cheap sense of superiority intellectually, morally, aesthetically. And by the way, that's just like the self-congratulatory self kind of uh, influencer content or even Tucker Carlson kind of content or Rachel Maddow kind of content that's basically saying... I, I Insofar as you agree with me, we've got the world figured out. You're already so far ahead of all of these other people, and they're responsible for all the problems, right? I would say, like the literal Nietzscheans who fully embrace that would be like Camille Paglia and Jordan Peterson. Like they, uh, is literally how they embody their thinking. We know the ideas. Nietzsche figured it out. It's an eternally recurring circle. And shut the fuck up. Don't you dare read anything that came later. 
<laughs> yeah, yeah, it's so funny. That's it's like, like your entire attitude. I, I like kind of pieced that together the other day. I was like, Jesus Christ, dude. I have a whole chapter in my book, uh, uh, in Waypoint. Uh, it, it's about Peterson being using Rezontemont, like falling into Rezontemont, while at the same time he's accusing people of Rezontemont. It's really ironic. I just I don't see how he doesn't see it. And if he doesn't, maybe he does know what he's doing. Who knows? But um, let's see. So I wanted to read the quote because Michael did share it. So it goes like this. So this is Slavoj, but I won't do the accent. This maintaining of a distance with regard to the master signifier characterizes the basic attitude of philosophy. Philosophy begins with the moment we do not simply accept what exists as given. Right? So you're not taking what's given or what you're told is real at face value anymore. But instead, we raise the question of how is what we encounter as actual also possible? So, right, we take what, so this is like a normie doesn't ever look at what's actual as anything other than it's actual, right? The point is, is that you look at the, what's actual and you say, but what made what's actual or what's being taken as actual possible, right? Sure. Okay. What characterizes philosophy is the step back from actuality into possibility. Theory involves the power to abstract from our starting point in order to reconstruct it subsequently on the basis of its presuppositions, its transcendental, con transcendental conditions of possibility. I'll explain that in a sec. Theory as such, by definition, requires the suspension of the master signifier. Okay, so there's just two things going on there. One is this transcendental conditions thing, right? And so obviously Kant is kind of the king of this method. And instead of, instead of saying, all right, so there's reason versus faith. So let's see which one wins. He instead, he instead says, yeah, but what are the conditions of possibility for reason in the first place? Right? Reason presupposes understanding. It presupposes cause and effect. It presupposes time. It presuppo So all of these things are presupposed by reason even to function in the first place. And so there are limits to reason. What are the parameters of those limits? What, you start getting into physics. You start getting into like, what are the basic building blocks that are uh, that are even setting this? Yeah, you know, what's what's the board made up of? Right. Yeah. Exactly. Well, and also like, how is it? How is a project of understanding reality as reducible to physics compromised by the conflation of our categories uh, in terms of our structures and modes of being? That's where Heidegger will come in with being in time. And that I just did the lecture on that. But also that you know, for Kant, it would be yeah. So Everything that you can say, you know, so physics operates in this way repeatedly. It always bears out that physics operates in this way is following from how we've already always interpreted the sense data, right? So from, from the fact that you were a baby who, first of all, it was all soup. And now you've actually found a way of, of finding it coherent in a way that's intelligible and can be exchanged with other people. But how much did the, how much did the brain develop to perceive it in this way that now we are testing and finding repeat, you know, repeatable, you know, so you, we could still be in the mind of God or in the, in the dreams of a, of a butterfly, or we could still be, right. you know, in the matrix or, you know, there could be an evil demon pulling strings. These are all ex examples of philosophers use. And obviously like analytic philosophers spend a lot of time thinking about that right there, like realism versus like, do we really have a cause for absolute certainty about anything? And obviously, it's pretty easy to run like a pseudo problem industry 
you know, to pad out your, your CV when you're trying, going for tenure, if all you want to write about is, you know, basically absolute certainty versus like problems posed on absolute certainty. Cause that's like an infinite regress of problems that will come from this idea of absolute certainty, which is one thing that pragmatism gets out of, which is why a lot of people will go there, especially Americans, right? Because you basically say, well, we don't need to be absolutely certain. Come on, let's, let's get on with our lives. Yeah. What were you going to say? Well, I was going to ask, so that's sort of like trying to get past your presuppositions and get to the core of it, but then realizing once you're even at the core of it, you are this sort of like subjective, but you're this sort of subjective being that is like, you're a brain that has, that is trying to perceive the world. So you don't have, you basically don't have objective access to, to what you're perceiving Then everything that you are perceiving is, is baked into what you are. What is there, is there a way that you describe that whole thing? Cause I think about that all the time and like what that implies, but is there a way to like, is there, is there a, what do you, what would you call that? Well, so, you know, that's, oh shit. Do you hear that noise? No. Oh, you didn't hear that noise? Oh, that's good. Well, I heard a noise and it made me think that my computer had gone offline for a second, but we're good. Um, so there's actually a book that if I could pull it out here, I would read you like a paragraph that really does, I think the most justice to it. It's by Lee Braver. And I'm just not sure i'm very disorganized right now but i think it might be up there by my bed anyway it's irrelevant i will come back to that so for for now he basically talks yeah. about he he talks about the factory of the mind how the mind you know produ the mind produces uh experience um obviously if you've ever messed with psychedelics you can see how easy it is to change that experience and that and it'll seem in contrast to your average everyday life, it'll seem like when you're on the substance that that's the most real thing ever. So for a lot of people, they do some shrooms and now they think they've figured out fundamental ontology. They've had direct access to the things themselves. Kant's point would be, no, you don't, motherfucker. You fucking idiot. No, you're, you're, you're still in it. It's just twisted, you know, and it's usually twisted in a way that confirms your biases. And it's usually twisted in some way that confirms the bias that you're an innocent little angel and it's everything else in the world that's the problem. And now you're just going to be a hippie for the next five years, you know. And so, which is, you know, it's, it's, it, it, it there's like an infantile, like, uh, consumeristic kind of enlightenment that comes from psychedelics that I think philosophy and theory is like the hard ver like the there's like the real version which is doing it by philosophy and theory and meditation and things like that and then there's the 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 consumer version where it's like a quick rush of enlightenment and then it goes away pretty quick and so you just have to keep doing it you know i prefer losing all hope and going temporarily insane that's what i recommend inside you said what but i said i prefer losing all hope and going temporarily insane i think that that's a much better way to access what the people on drugs are trying to access. Well, and the thing is, is if you are losing touch with reality and you don't know what's what and you're going temporarily insane, um, it's obviously going to be a good reference point for later on. And, and so it's like, it will be clarifying. But if you are on drugs when that's happening, you're actually going to not, you're not going to know where the drugs uh, end and the actual losing touch with reality begins. And so yeah. you're not able to have an authentic engagement with your own, like, 
confusion and, and, and all of this stuff. And so for me, I'm not anti-psychedelics, but I'm actually very hostile towards pro-psychedelic, um, you know, talk, right? So for me, it's not, I think it's not, it's not against the thing, but it is against the people who are just like, oh, it's the solution to depression. It's the solution to this. It's the solution to that. Like Michael Pollan is popularizing it right now, you know, and he's the author of like, uh, the omnivores dilemma. And so he's like really big with like mainstream liberals and stuff like that. And now he's like a missionary for shrooms and stuff like this. And it's like, ah, man, it's fine. It's fine, I, I, but it's I not get, the solution. I, I, I get annoyed just, you know, to, to, to wrap up this point, Ron, I, I agree. I get annoyed, you know, as someone that would, would have been like that sort of mindset at one point, you know, in my teenage years. Um, I agree. I, I'm not, you know, I think basically that those things can be a way to just sort of step out of your frame for a second. And it shouldn't really be viewed much more than that. You're not accessing something. You're just really ramp. It's, it's like doing meth. You're just ramping up your, your senses in a really crude way. And it's going to either accelerate your train of thought that maybe you're working on something, or it's going to step you out of a frame, you know, more like psychedelics It's going to step you out of a frame so that you can be aware that the current frame that you're in isn't all that there is. And I would say that, like, yeah, if you sort of, like, lose your mind and lose touch of reality, or when I say I lose my mind, really what it is, it's losing hope and then going into a hyper-focus because I'm ADHD. And, okay, okay. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. You know, 100%. I don't know if you've ever had that experience where you're just, like, you're just on, right? Um, well, so right now those, we're talking... Those, we're, yeah, those are useful experiences, but those are not... I, I agree. Those are not, that's not, you haven't like hit the truth. You just have, you just had an epiphany. Like there's nothing wrong with an epiphany, but don't turn it into apophenia and think that the patterns that you saw are the structure itself. Like, no, that's. Well, know, and that's that, where, that's where we can get into how, you know, how easy it is to, once you stop taking the actual as actual and you start thinking about what makes the actual possible and you take on this skeptical posture towards, you know, well, maybe we don't have direct access to the things themselves and maybe maybe this stuff's constructed to some degree. And, maybe, you know, though that is the, the beginning of philosophy, it's also the beginning of conspiracy theories. And so we'll, we will get into my sympathies towards people who are pegged as conspiracy theorists and my sympathies towards uh, all, all the people who end up being scapegoated and, and, and blamed by, by people in positions of power uh, for, for losing their minds in this crazy system. We'll get into all that, but right now I just want to wrap up the whole thing on philosophy versus theory. The, the, the thing is, is uh, Marx makes a definitive contribution to philosophy, but then he is also doing something that is inherently political. And so a lot of people don't want to engage with Marx because they just don't care about reading a politician or, a, or an economist or the, who's politically motivated, and they just want to read philosophy. And so there's a lot of people in the world of philosophy who don't even bother with that. The thing is, is his, his uh, 1844 manuscripts are a great place to go if you just want to read some based philosophy by him. Um, there's, other, there's other times when he's engaging with uh, you know, German idealism, he's critiquing it and everything like that. But you know, one example of that is when he comes... So Feuerbach was uh, kind of against the, these German idealists, and he was a materialist, and he was an atheist... And, uh, and, and, and Marx likes Feuerbach, but, uh, you know, he writes these theses on Feuerbach and the 11th thesis 
is kind of the origin of theory. It's when he says the philosophers have only interpreted the world. The point is to change it. And so, you know, while while, while he is basically a philosopher, uh, he's also just he's a he's officially split philosophy now between philosophy that's just trying to understand things and interpret things and philosophy that is committed to changing things, uh, pr presumably for the better. Um, and so the critical theory, uh, you know, it's usually focused on power, on oppression, etc. Right. But uh, this 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 Marxist theory that, you know, kind of stems from that moment is how do we get power? Right. We being the working class. And so, or, or people who are on the side of the working class, because at the time this is industrialization, the immiseration of the working class is blatantly obvious. People are, it's the Charles Dickens world, right? It's right. like, which side are you on? Right. So yeah, what were you going to say? Well, yeah, let just, uh, uh, so let me be critical of, uh, for a, for a second, ask a question and, and you just give me a brief answer on it. What's the difference? So, so you're basically outlining philosophy is this sort of like it's an it's an observation and it's a it's a, a, a i was going to say inquisition but that's sometimes it feels that way um it's an option it, it's it's a it's a questioning right and it's a what is reality what is true and then theory it seems like theory is it, it has a place in mind where it wants to go and then it's picking a starting point and going from there What's the difference between theory and what Moldbuggen then do? Ooh, that's a great question. Yeah. Why is what Moldbuggen do and do so terrible, but then theory is like based in Chad Pill? Is it just that we don't like Moldbug and Dugan? Now I feel like I have a personal answer a little bit, but I'd like to hear what you what you think. This is one of those questions I'll probably think about for a few years and come back to with you over time. So I am curious to hear what you have to say, but before I, I guess the obviously there's biases involved, but I, I think though that for me, when I'm thinking about uh, theory, uh, I have to talk about the split in theory. So you've got um, theory that is actively engaged in trying to change the world that took that eleventh thesis to heart, and then you've got theory that says we keep trying and failing. Why are we failing? And so this is my new articulation of it. I've had a lot of different ways of saying this before that were a lot more longer winded, but that's my nice, short, succinct summary. And you're not going to get it more straight than that for anywhere on the internet. No one's tried as hard to distill it into that. That is the difference though. It is a difference between we're trying to change the world today, right now. And usually that means like we're using Lenin or Kropotkin or something, someone who thought they had it figured out and was rolling out action plans and let's put together a program and mobilize people today uh, versus uh, someone who's like, we keep trying and failing. And also science has changed the game in, in ways that were not true a hundred years ago. And, and also what we're seeing in our lived reality is so tremendously different that we just lack the concepts for even dealing with things. Actually, we do need to reinterpret, reconstruct the world right now. And so I, I would say still though, that there is a little bit of contrivance on the theory side. Like, why is it that, uh, Deleuze has such an issue with, negativity. He just doesn't want to even have, he, you know, so 
almost every philosopher that I like after Kant, you know, has negativity is, is a, is a piece of their puzzle. And, 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 you know, an important part of that is like, there are things about absences about, so for, you know, in, in the existential sense, you know, this is the example we always go to, um, you show up at a coffee shop, shop and sit down and then an hour later, your entire day's ruined and you're sitting there and to the scientific observer who's just looking at what's present, nothing is, what, what's wrong, right? Well, what's wrong is that the person who is supposed to meet you there is not there. And that has incredible significance. But this is a negativity. You, the, a positive science is not able to think about negativity. And so from Hegel through Heidegger and into Sartre and all the existentialists and stuff like that, negativity has a huge function. Um, and they're all they're all theorizing it in their own in their own ways, right? So Carnap, the analytic philosopher, makes fun of Heidegger for saying that the nothing noths. Obviously, he says something else because he's talking in German, because noth is not a word. Um, but he's basically saying the nothing nothings in like this verbing this positive verbing way, and 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 well, you know, for Carnap, that's incoherent. Well, what I just said, it's not incoherent because what I just said is that the, the significance of this coffee shop occasion, the significance of it, which is a positive thing, significance, it's meaning filled, um, is obviously supercharged by a negativity. So it's not absurd to say it. And so for anybody who's thinking about negativity like that's well, well, why is Deleuze? He's got this chip on his shoulder. He fucking hates negativity. Everything about his theory is going to just not have negativity in it almost to the point where you think he's associated negativity with just being negative and he doesn't want to be negative. He wants to be positive like a good Nietzschean because Nietzsche was very critical of Arthur Schopenhauer being such a cynic and, and Nietzsche was like, I see everything you're seeing, bro, but I'm going to put a smile on it, you know? And, 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 and so it, it and Deleuze was a, a Nietzschean of sorts. And so it's, but it's like, you're doing metaphysics, man. Your feelings about, being negative shouldn't have anything to do with your feelings about negativity as a metaphysical, like, uh, factor. Like, what? It just doesn't make any sense. But it does seem like every theorist who's, like, reinterpreting the world anew or deconstructing what we take to be the world today, they have a set of presuppositions and chips on their shoulder or axes to grind that they are not seemingly challenging for themselves. But I, I here's the thing with that. You've got to start somewhere, and one thing that Heidegger made everybody realize is that you're always all you're all always already thrown into the middle of everything. There is no starting point. There is no getting back to yeah. the starting point, and it's because that's true, you could spend the rest of your life turning every rock over, and saying, "Is this presupposition okay? Is this presupposition okay?" And do an analytic philosophy approach to every rock that you turn over. Well, yeah. or you can say, "Well." All these other philosophers have been thinking about negativity and have put it into the center of their system, but I think that I could do a metaphysics that is hip with all of the modern science and based in, you know, as for like the kinds of activism that I approve of and, and just bring it all together into one beautiful picture of the world. And I think I'm capable of it and therefore I'm going to fucking do it. Hell yeah, I'm going to do it. And there are certain things that I'm going to presuppose out the door because everyone has to presuppose certain things out the door. And I'm not going to sit there and do this reflexive, 
is it okay that I'm presupposing that blah, blah, blah? No, no. he just says, fuck it, I'm going to go. I'm going to go ham on these ideas. And so, I don't, you know, so for me, it's like something for us to be critical of when we're dealing with theorists is what is their fundamental set of presuppositions? What are their fundamental questions and concerns? What, how did history and context inform those questions and concerns? How did they articulate for themselves what they were doing? How did they articulate for others what it is that they were doing? Does it make sense? And is that actually what they were doing? Or were they deceiving themselves about what they were doing? Could there have been other motives in play? What were the goals? These are the kinds of critical questions that nobody fucking asks when they talk about theory. Almost ever, right? And and for me, I'm self-critical of this because it's like... I. It's not like I'm like doing these amazing hour-long video essays where I introduce philosophers and I and I answer all those questions. I'm not there yet. I'm working on it. You know, I'm more in this like student. I'm I'm in like myself as a student for the fourth time, right? Like I've been a student and then thought that oh I I'm on to the next thing and then I'm like oh I don't know shit. Back to being a student. This is like the fourth iteration of me doing that and. And every time that that's happened too, I usually got really into some thinker and couldn't really see the world outside of that thinker's way of seeing things. And then it stopped answering problems for me. It stopped answering fundamental questions for me and, and things about their context and motivations and things that they weren't seeing and that, that other people called into question and other people critiqued from within and from without that discipline or tradition start emerging to the surface. And I go, oh shit, right? But I do think that's part of the process is you get into someone. So you could become a Baudrillardian all the way yeah. through and through and you read nothing but Baudrillard. You say you, you say what a Baudrillardian would say to everything until yeah. you've basically nailed it. But then it stops stops working for you and then the yeah. ways that it stops working for you will be illuminating to you. And then that's when you might get into someone else. And when you start to see the whole world anew through someone else and you're disillusioned with that other person – you're able to look back on that other person and now you've got like this whole other take on that. But then here's the thing. Eventually those idols have all kind of come down to earth. I'm not going to say they crash and crumble. I've had conversations with people about, well, the, all of them, all of these thinkers are compromised. All of these thinkers are flawed. All of these things. So all of my idols have died and now it's just me on my own critiquing things. And I'm like, <laughs> you're a fucking dumbass. You could read these people for the rest of your life and keep learning things and seeing things that you'll never see on your own because all, there is no such thing as on your own. That's another thing that you get past, uh, especially high Heidegger onwards, you're always already thrown into a world that is full. You know, your sense of being in the world is the language of others that was there before you were there, right? And so that's where Althusser will say that you're 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 interpol interpolated by ideology, by institutions of power, by vested interested uh, by by vested interests that want you to reproduce society in certain ways. That and, and may, there might be wars between them all, but they also have all of the things they take for granted that they don't want you to even think about. And so that's, you're always in the middle of that. There's no getting out of that. And so, so the idea that, oh, well, I'm going to go it alone. I've got my own critical gaze. I can put it onto everything. No, you're fucking derivative. You're watered I'm down. outside observer. <laughs> yeah, right? Yeah, now that I'm critical of the Democratic Party and the Republican Party, I am the outside observer. Well, it's because every time you get into something, everything you're saying is beautifully said. Like, every time you get into something, uh, you think you've stepped out of, you know, there's like, it's, it's like the whole Plato's cave. You step out of Plato's cave. It's like, Oh, I'm outside the cave now. Now I can criticize. And you don't realize like, uh, buddy, you got a lot of caves to step out of. You're never going to get out of all of them. And in fact, you're going to die in a cave. Like 
I, I, I reject this sort of like attitude and I, it, I guess the world has always probably been this way, but it seems so like obnoxious to me now, especially as I've gotten, you know, into a lot of the, the, the philosophy that I've gotten in the past, you know, a couple of years, like the, the, the staunch ideology of people where, you know, you'll see this, the, the worst examples of this is with your like, your Vosh types or your Destiny types or your Ben Shapiro types or your, you know, your Jordan Peterson types where they have it all, man. And like, they'll like sort of give these illusions to sort of like, oh, but I don't know everything, you know, because they don't want to look like a narcissist. But like, they just have all the answers, man. And if only we could just do things this fucking way, you know, it's just that simple, then it would all work, you right. know. Um, I really reject this, and I, you know, I, I want to bitch about it on the left because that's what I came here to do. Ultimately, um, <laughs> is there's this goddamn nerdy fucking inclination. I feel like I'm in a fucking grammar class, and the kid next to me every time I'm like, "Oh, let's say something beautiful about the literature." There's some goddamn nerd on Twitter that comes in and it says, "Actually, the." St- statistics don't say that and actually the data doesn't reproduce that and actually what the academic consensus is it's like we have gotten into a place with science where it has just turned into like it's just like brainwashing it's just like dude it's so bad culture there's just pop culture brainwashing and that's so bad article you did by the way functional literacy with a functional literacy where you sort of like peel back the curtain on this where it's just like People think they know so fucking much because they read a book and it's the only book they ever fucking read. And it, it drives me insane. And then me, I'm out here, you know, I want to hear your response to that, that. But just to follow up on what you said, I'm out here like doing the same thing you're doing where it's like, now I used to do this with YouTubers, right? And now I've moved on to, okay, let's stop doing this with YouTubers. And let's do this with actual thinkers. Like I'm tired of like these basic bitch, you know, intermediaries. Um, but I will just maybe it's my ADHD, whatever, I will get into something and I will be obsessive about it. And that that's like the thing. Like I just went through a neo-Luddite phase, right? Like in the past year where it was like, hell yeah. See everything through a neo-Luddite lens. It's like, this is because of technology. This is because of technology. This is because of technology. And you just sort of like completely engross yourself in that. And you sort of like completely radicalize yourself in that. Now I used to do this in a way where I would lose myself, right? Where I'd be like, Oh, I'm a libertarian now. That's the thing. Oh, now I'm a civic nationalist. That's the thing. Um, now I'm a, you know, liberal, whatever the fuck. And that's the thing. Now I'll tie a rope off on a rock and I'll sort of drop in the cave. And I'm like, all right, let's feel this motherfucker out. Let's see what's going on here. And you have to, like a method actor, you have to fully embody it. You can't just go in like with your pen and paper, like doing graphs, because you're never going to fully, to me, it's like so much of this is intuition and feeling that's so much a part of learning you're never going to do it you're never going to get to that point unless you can completely just shed your skin and, and let yourself go with it and and you know some people sometimes people say to me they're like well, faraday you look at dangerous ideologies aren't you scared that something's going to rub off i don't know maybe but also i'm not a racist anymore i don't think trans people belong in a fucking you know furnace and you know i, I i'm a bit skeptical to my knowledge of things and so like i try to treat people I try to think, approach people and, and ideas in a humble manner. So, no, I'm not too scared. And also, I don't have any fucking powers. What am I going to do to anybody? Um, but I, I like this idea of you t- 
talking about we need to like be able to go into something and embrace it and then come out the other side and then and the other you know i want to hear what your response to the the last thing that you were going to say but, but I, I agree total hey take care Bajou smith take care yeah well uh you wanted to hear me talk about what though what was the point that I said? I said there was the point about fully embracing yourself into an idea. And then there was a point about the data nerds that come on Twitter. And if you like try to break outside the bounds of their preordained academic or scientific, you know, pop philosophies, they call you a schizo poster and say you're not making any sense. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. And the sort of functional illiterates yeah. that come out because it's the only book they ever read. So, so did you, where did you read that? Cause I, I don't even think that's available on the internet right now. I think that was on my old website. Where did you find that, that it's, piece? It's, I've been linking it to people. It's still available. Can you link it to me in the chat? Yeah. You can just type in theory, plebe, functional literacy and it comes right up. <laughs> what? Oh shit. Maybe I posted it on medium as well. Uh, that might I be. I think that's where it's at. Oh, uh, I should actually put some of my stuff on medium. It's. I think most of us. That's a great media. article, by the way, man. That was a really. I was like, I loved how succinct it was. That was a great fucking article. Thank you. Um, yeah, there's there's like a handful of articles I've written. Most of them aren't posted. I'm saving them for my next book, but that I will end up putting them up and then linking my book or whatever. You know what I mean? But like, there's there's a handful that I've done. They're like what? a they're like their own genre. Oh, there we go. Oh, whoops. This is the. I didn't mean that chat, but that's that'll work. That'll work. Okay, I'm gonna I'm gonna share it in the chat. The uh, oh okay yeah 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 yeah. All right, folks, I'm dropping it in the chat. Here you go. So there you go. Yeah, that's great. So the uh, oh that's funny. Derry to Bodley Canyon says spelunking the theory caves. Yeah, that's what spelunking, you're talking. Spelunking all the caves. You you have to. Someone asked me. They were like, because uh, I've I've kind of like gotten to this hyper skeptic skepticism mode. Uh, I posted this meme and it was like it was Klaus Schwab's at the top and it said now repeat after me children this is what rebellion looks like and then it had like Vosh and the, the bread tubers then it had Caleb Moppin and the Pat socks. then it had like uh, 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 Sargon of Akkad and Peterson and all the sort of centrist right and then it had like uh, 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 Richard Spencer and Nick Fuentes and all them and you know the point is is that like everybody's in this like weird fucking hyper real web where they all think they've landed at a particular conclusion that explains it all. And they all, you know, I'll give credit to everybody. Everybody has like a little piece of the truth that they like, you know, that they've latched onto like a life raft, but that everybody's full of shit at the same time. And somebody was like, what about you, Faraday? What are your sources? And I said, everything, <laughs> like just everything. Like, but what should you read then? If, if you can't trust anything, I said, you should read everything and not be so enveloped. I mean, I don't know what else to say to, to the average person. Like, there's no camp or cult I can point them to and be like, there, you'll be safe there. Like, I don't feel safe leaving anybody in any particular place. And so if you're going to ask me for advice, I tell you, read yeah. everything. Almost everything of value in terms of, you know, deep insights into reality or useful concepts for, for understanding, like, ourselves in this world in ways that gives us some kind of freedom or liberation i'm talking 
because you know the question of collective liberation or emancipation is like that's like the theory question that's like another question though the the question of personal liberation that is the first thing for philosophy and you know you, you shouldn't be trying to free the world if you haven't freed yourself if you haven't gone through a period of like thinking about things and so uh there's a couple of things to tie together here uh, one is this division between philosophy and theory and why you saw them as separate and i wanted to talk about what's responsible for that as well um, in the American scene, and this is before we go to break, because we're going to go to break for a minute here. But um, the 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 other thing, um, and, and by the way, yeah, uh, the uh, the functional illiteracy piece also gets at it, right? Um, and and the thing is, if, folks, if you click on that link, I just checked it. It is on Medium, but the other half of that article, it says that you have to subscribe to my letters. Um, and so, yeah, you actually, for the other half of it, you got to subscribe to nsplebe.substack.com, which is a temporary thing until I get my dream website that I've been wanting for years. It's a, it's, if I have my time, energy, and the inspiration to do it, it'll happen, basically. Anyway, but uh, to, the, the long and short of it, like, you keep using this example of people read a single book and now they think they've got to figure it out for life, right? Well, and that's true. And a part of it is that when people are structurally stultified, of their time energy, right? These are two of my terms that I use a lot, structural stultification and time energy. Time energy is the kind of time that is charged with like this kind of like low key energy. It's not like you're like, fucking I'm energized. Woo. No, no. Cause that shit burns out. We're talking about like a, like a slow burning kind of energy that only comes after you're thoroughly rested for a few days. You've slept in as much as you need to. And now you don't have to worry about getting to work. I mean, if you go to work, then that is not time energy anymore. You, that's you, you. It's been converted into labor power. And at the end of a week, if your labor power is all gone to market, all you have at the end of that week is time without energy. And if you have any energy, it's like this fleeting burst of energy that has a kind of time that Byung Chul Han talks about as point time, which is like the kind of time that's not tied to anything else. It's just kind of like if it's 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 just like it, you could go to a movie, you could go to the pub, you could go do some consumer activity, but you're not going to be able to begin to develop language skills. You're yeah. not going to you're not going to be able to play the violin on a weekend and guess what next weekend you got stuff to do and you know especially when we're talking about this adhd like like consumed into something and obsessively engaged with something like that that to really do that outside of work like you gotta have your time energy and for me time energy in the book you know in, in waypoint i talk about it there's two kinds basically there's like time energy in the sense of like this bigger sense and then there's like your relative kind of time energy because like on a relative scale, sounds like you basically have it if you're not working like a full-time gig doing other stuff. All right, so you basically you basically have. Yeah, and, I've, and I've and I've made sacrifices and fought to put myself in a situation where I can essentially just sit around and dedicate time to this, and, and, and it's not easy to do that. Not everybody has a. I you know I had a wage slave life, and I you come home and you're just like, you, you can't. You, yeah, you're right. The time energy thing, I think it's beautifully said with the way you're. Yeah, well, and the, so here's the There's thing, no, though. You can't have continuity towards anything. And I like that the, the, the point energy is the other the point that really point time, yeah. together is the point time is that you don't ever get a continuity, right? Right. Like right. The, the only way I have a continuity to the stuff I think about is because I have made sacrifices and also leveraged myself in such a way where I don't have to go to work so much. You know, I don't have to, like, wage slave to survive so much. 
Right. I'm I'm not paying rent right now because I live on a farm with a family that's very nice that lets me park my I built this for twenty two hundred dollars, uh, and it's basically a bed on wheels and there's no bathroom or kitchen in it and you know, it's cramped and it's not ideal. Uh, but, but, you know, I get to use the bathroom in the entryway of their house. And sometimes I use the kitchen, like that's a lifestyle, like it's a way of hacking culture. So you can get around yeah. constantly being consumed so exactly. that you can develop yourself, you know? So yeah, it definitely requires sacrifices, but here's the other problem though. So you make those sacrifices or you could become unemployed in either one of those cases, all of a sudden you have some relative time energy, not exactly because I always say that like one of the key components of time energy is like having potential recognition uh, from communities of potential recognition. And I'm not using recognition in this like kind of sense, like, oh, institutional recognition where they're going to give you a degree or and I'm not talking about like, oh, people are going to see you in your full humanity and understand who you are and appreciate you for your contributions. But I am talking about like, if you get really good at the violin and then you play it for an audience that doesn't know music. And so they're moved by it, but they also don't really understand what you've really done. Um, it doesn't really pan out. And so half the motor force to really be excellent is lost. And so that can actually take where you have time, but you don't really have like that charge of energy because you don't have, you don't have other people you're doing it with. You don't have other people you're doing it for because other people are structurally saltified of their time energy. And so because you, you might be making these choices, but they have children. You might be making these choices, but they have careers. Right. And so that's, that's a big part of it. So structural saltification of time energy leads to this situation where we have basically like this, this, this epid, this, uh, the real pandemic, it's functional literacy, you know? And so functional literacy, it's that thing where- There's so, an oversaturation of information as well, right? Right. Like you, it's not just that you have the limited time energy and that there's the structural problems that come with that, but the, what the fuck, you, there's so much. And where do you start? Even if we're not even, even if we're not just looking at like something like philosophy where you could argue that, well, a lot of these are valid sources. There's so much invalid, so many invalid sources now. Well, and there's just a bunch of bullshit. That's a bu there's a bunch exactly. of bullshit. There's a book called the, uh, I think it's called This Is Not Propaganda, and I think the key thesis to the book. I've only read parts of it at this point. Sorry, but the the, the I think the main point of the book is that uh, we live in a different kind of propaganda, which is the too much information propaganda. Where there, and really like a good example of it is like if you go to libraries when they're getting rid of books. Right. If you have ever gone to like one of their sales where they're getting rid of books, there's a lot of really good books on the way out. And what's replacing it is like they've added rows and rows and rows and rows of youth fiction. It's absolute and utter trash, trash, fucking trash. Guess what? Teenagers can read James Joyce and Deleuze and Guattari and they can read fucking Sartre. Teenagers are not fucking stupid but they're being treated like they're stupid and their teachers are assuming that they're stupid and they're assuming that they're distracted and be, these teachers don't have time energy to genuinely engage with these kids and then the teachers who are getting these jobs usually aren't super interested in the life of the mind anyway. A lot of them sit in the lunchroom and talk drama instead of like actually like ideas or anything like that and so they're not passionate you know the whole system's just gutted out of ideas and it persecutes anybody who's going to take the, this skeptical stance. It persecutes anybody that's, who's going to take that skeptical stance towards what's actual. That's what scares me 
more than a world of idiots that don't know anything. And this is the other side of the advice that I give to people because some people say, I don't have, Caleb, I don't have time to read everything. Okay, I've got limited time energy, bud. To those people, I basically tell them, I'm like, then you shouldn't read anything. Just, just watch sports, dude. Just watch fucking Rick and Morty and take your fucking mind out of all this bullshit because you're going to get trapped in an info hazard somewhere. And then, of course, that's not a satisfying answer to somebody. But the problem is exactly what you're outlining, where the things that are readily accessible in our culture. And I think that this is the big problem that I was, you know, fumbling through trying to articulate earlier in the conversation about the left and the right, too. But I'm putting more pressure on the left because I expect more out of them. You know, right, where right, right. They are only exposed to this, like, you think, like, oh, I'm on the Internet. Oh, I'm at the Barnes & Noble. There's a world of exploration here. And it's like, no, there really isn't. What there is is a bunch of crap. And that crap, it's not even that it's just like you're just reading like bullshit. You're reading stuff that you think is educating you. You're reading stuff that you think it's it's like, you know, to give an example of like, you know, kids on the right, they watch fucking Fight Club and they think that they've learned something. And I love that movie. There's there's stuff to go into with that movie. Yeah. There really is. But if you watch Fight Club or you read Fight Club and you think that you now you've educated yourself to something, you really haven't. You really have it. Like you need to read Fight Club, and then you need to read about a dozen other things to deprogram the bullshit that Fight Club just stuck in your fucking head. Like it's it's so it it, it makes me really disturbed and really sad. And then I think the ultimate, the worst manifestation of this is the sort of online video essays and debate cultures because they like they brand themselves and then pump it in your face that. This is what education looks like. And it's just. Right. So going I, back I, to that, people learn how to read, but they don't learn how to read. So they think that yeah. they know how to read. If, if they met somebody who doesn't know how to read, they'd be like, oh, you, oh, I'm so sorry for you. Like, oh, that person, like, oh, no, they can't even read. But just because you can read signs and advertisements and because you can read a novel uh, doesn't mean you've ever really read. And just because you, you know, you did it for the grade when you were in high school, you ended up reading some classic literature or something like that, or like, you know, kind of forcing yourself to do it for the grade or whatever, doesn't mean that you learned how to read. Right. And so, and obviously like, that's not an environment, I think that for learning how to read it's, you know, it's a disciplinary carceral kind of system that most, most people's schooling experience is sad, but the, the, if you've never really read, and to really properly read something, you got to read it three times. There's all these cr these critical questions I brought up earlier about the context, the explicit motives, the other possible motives, the outside critique, the inside critique. Yeah. You know, all of these different things that factor in. That and, and then what kind of assumptions are you bringing to the text that yeah. that are where it's not really you're not going to really see anything that was really going on there if you don't let go of certain presuppositions that you're bringing into it now as somebody who lives in this society now right like so there's all these things that come into it and obviously you might take a good literature class that teaches you something like that you philosophy might give you a couple of ideas or something in high school but here's the thing if you didn't really have the time to seriously practice that and then you get you get out into the workforce and then there's like, you actually like read 12 rules for life or you read something by Brene Brown or you read something by Simon Sinek or, or, you know, what any of these, you know, Sam Harris, 
or you know you you listen to to Alan Watts, you know you, to one of these you know pop intellectuals is what they're called. And the, my problem with pop intellectuals is not that they're popularizing intellectual things. I like that part. The problem is they yeah. usually pose themselves as the person who has all the answers. They've basically got it figured out. They've done the reading so that you don't have to, and now they're telling you how it works so that you'll buy more of their books and get hooked to them and become part of their fandom. That's the issue. They're not telling you how to go do the thing yourself. And so, and you know, usually they haven't really spent much time doing the thing themselves either. And so, um, so yeah, then you, you, you end up reading their book and because you've never seriously engaged with the book, why are you reading this book all of a sudden? It's either because someone you look up to and want to be more like, or have like you is reading this book, or it's because you've burnt out. You've come to your wits end. Your entire life is a lie. You don't know what's real anymore. And then this was the thing that for some reason was on your radar, probably charged by someone else's interest because desire is desire of the other And at the end of the day. And so then you read it and then it's the first time you've truly paid attention while simultaneously being disillusioned with all of life's possibilities and taking what's actual uh, with a grain of salt. And now you read this and you go, oh. And, but, but here's the thing, because you haven't learned how to read and you haven't been engaging with this kind of stuff, now it's transparent. This is, it's like, it's like you're holding a rock and you're analyzing the, 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 the qualities of the rock, right? It just seems, well, it's just real. You've got your hands on it. You've got a grasp on it. And so ideology is always this way. And one of the things that ideology also does, and I'm not talking about the Zizekian sense exactly here. I'm just talking about like in the sense where you have an institution, it has a, a, a narrative about why, what's wrong with the world and what you got to do to, 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 to be a good, one of the good ones. And it's got the solutions. You said earlier that everybody's got a grasp on the truth or they're all getting at something, right? It's that classic way of being a pluralist about religion where they're all holding on to part of the elephant or whatever. But, you know, it's also like a good kind of mentality to have about everything, right? Because, you know, ideologies work for a lot of reasons that have nothing to do with the letter of what's being said, right? Like part of what can make an ideology work for... still interfacing with reality. Yeah, well, and also because there's, there's psychology and so like what the, the group dynamics. And so, you know, like b believing something absurd can be a unifying factor for the in-group against the bigger world. So it's not always because they literally believe something to be true. And then there's also cynical ideology. This is where Zizek would come in, right? So people say they believe things, but there's not, I mean, a lot, most people aren't ideologues, right? In this like hard sense. Um, and a lot of people have like this kind of distance from it to the point where I think that's a lot of the thing that that's, that's what like someone like Sam Harris is missing out on or Dawkins or something when, when they spent so much time focusing on the people who are the true believers instead of the people who actually have some ironic distance, but are still going to church. Like it's, it's something else for them. It's something different entirely. And so you're actually, you know, it becomes a, a straw man or whatever. Well, the, the, I, I'm saying it's all those things as well. But something else that works for ideology, there, it usually almost every figurehead who has something to sell in terms of solutions for how things work and to help you make sense of your life has really grasped something legit. And it's usually something that competing ideologies and ideologues don't want to contend with. And so it lets them put their particular spin on it. They take this true insight and then they make it part of their brand. It's like what I'm doing with time energy, to be perfectly honest, right? But obviously, this it's not meant to be an ideology. But at the same time, though, it's like you, you, you're taking something from reality that other people aren't seriously thinking through enough. And then 
you make it part of your brand. And then here's the thing, because nobody else want, wanted to associate it with it, or now that you've kind of you know made yourself the, the, the spokesperson for it, now people don't want to have, oh, they, they don't want to be affiliated with it or whatever. Well, then that, there's like this vacuum. You're the one holding the thing. And now you've got a monopoly on a truth. You've got a monopoly on a kind of truth or a specific stance on truth or a specific insight and nobody else wants to talk about it. Well, what does that mean? Well, your enemies will literally deny it just for the fact of who you are and they don't like you and they're against you. And so they create a polarized opposite. Like they won't even ever listen to it because they need to fight you so they can, you know, keep the vacuum of their truth. It's, it's just, I, I, I have a whole, it's like, it's, it has like a shape in my head what you're describing and it just drives me mad. Well, there's, there's, there's the, in my forthcoming work, there's this term it's a very technical term we can't get into it too much don't go around using it too much because it's very technical but oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. but it's called dumb fuck dialectics <laughs> and so you know and and, and and you know so dumb fuck dialectics was already you know already the thesis antithesis synthesis is a form of like a bastardized kind of dialectics already but dumb fuck dialectics is where one side only looks at dumb fucks on the other side and then argues against that and dumb fucks on the other side only look dumb fucks on the other side and argues against that and then the, you got this thesis antithesis synthesis dumb fuck dialectics and it just goes and goes yeah. and goes right but then you've also got these mutually competing truth claims that are actually getting into something correct both sides have a monopoly on these different parts of the truth, but they absolutely refuse to engage with or take seriously something that the other one's getting at. And so there's the way that the truth is articulated or interpreted, and then there's the actual kernel of truth there. And so what normally happens is the baby gets thrown out with the bathwater, right? And so for me, sal you know, it's a salvaging exercise, this kind of spelunking into the clay. Is that how you say that word? Yeah, you go into the cave. You've got your rope, your rope, and you're down there. You gotta I'm, have the rope. You gotta have your rope. You're gonna learn to think. You're gonna learn to talk like one does. You're gonna get okay. What what's going on here? Assessing the lay of the land, which we'll get more into because you wanted a topography of theory. So we're gonna have to get back into that. But yeah, this whole thing is. It, I love that you've got this mentality about it already because of the other stuff that you've already been through, so that you know that that's kind of part of the process. So a big part of it is there's a million books being printed every year or published every year. It's an industry. You know, there's just a lot of garbage. Like there's the you know. Being a writer is, and, and you know, publishers being able to give their 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 legitimation or, ne or recognition to you, and that esteem that comes with it, and all of this bullshit is part of a dream that people have. People say, "I want to be a rock star. I want to be a writer." Okay, well, you know, I want to play baseball. You know, well, you know, okay, everybody's got their little dream or whatever. Uh, but being a writer is just part of that that thing, right? And nowadays, anybody can get published by anyone anywhere. Fucking uh, and 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 the thing, or you could just self-publish. But the point is, br br there's so much information. TMI culture, it's the attention economy. We're constantly distracted. We don't have time, energy. Where do you start? For me, I say go to the people who've withstood the tests of time. Now, traditionally, for thousands of years, if you were reading something, you were reading it because it had been written down over and over and over again by people who usually committed it to heart for thousands of years. Okay. Bullshit. There's a consistency there. Right. Well, and part of what it says is, you know, 
that there's like this lineage of people who say it's worthwhile. So nowadays, somebody, right. everyone always, as soon as you study philosophy or you have a, a, a platform or whatever, everybody wants your fucking validation. And part of that is they want you to say that you've got, that they read interesting articles. And so they share their articles with you and they want your opinions on the videos that they watch. And it's the worst part of the job. In my opinion, it's the worst part of the job. I don't fucking care about your articles. I care unless it's like I'm asking questions about something and I actually want people in on this or whatever. If it's directly contributing to a line of flight that I'm on or whatever, fucking sure, yeah, hundred percent. But instead, it's like it's it's like every boss I've ever worked for who's kind of like wants to bro down with me and wants me to come over and play poker on the weekend, like. The person wants my validation on all kinds of shit that they believe. I don't... I'm, I'm here to make money. I'm not trying to do this, right? And, and that's the situation at work. But then I'm doing this because this is my passion and I'm not trying to commodify it. I'm just trying to do it because I care about it. But then people are still like, they just want the validation. And it's like, teach me a concept. Help me out here. Break down something like useful. But instead they share with these fucking articles. And the thing about an article is like, okay... If somebody had to write that down by hand and then find other people to show it to and then convince them that it's relevant and then get them to write it down by hand because the, the papyrus or the whatever, you know, the leather that, you know, it's, it's going to rot and turn into dust. And so you've got to keep it alive by writing it down and committing it to heart and all this stuff. Like if, well, then I'll read your fucking article. If you're going to write it down by hand and you're going to keep going back to it. But here's the thing. You probably read the title and then half of it. And now you want my opinion, right? Because everything's instantaneous. And now you want my instantaneous validation as well. I, I try not to share articles with people until I've like gone over them multiple times. And usually it's like I, 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 I read or listen to an article. Usually on pocket, I listen to them. And then it's like, you know, months later... I keep thinking about this fucking article. So I finally listen to it again. And then I'm like, fuck, there's so much more here than I thought the, the last time. That repetition that draws you back is... The That's the importance. Bro, I feel guilty when I send people even a video to watch. I'm like, oh, God, did I just, like, bomb them? And, like, uh, I feel so crazy when I send somebody something. It's like... I, I know, you know I, I, mean? I actually, I, 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 I publicly vented on Twitter. I, I try not to do that. It's such a, it's such a form oh, of, stop doing that. It's stop such it. a, it's such a, it. such a form of jouissance and death drive. It really is. You need to get an, you need to get a detached irony where you just post memes that are vague. Yeah, 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 like, yeah, yeah. No, it's true. Post. It's true. Well, so, but I, but I publicly vented about people always doing that, this validation, yeah. you know, article sharing thing. And then someone got in my DMs to apologize. And it was one of those situations where I was like, actually, it's not you, bro. Like, what you shared with me was genuinely interesting. And it's right yeah. up my it's right up my alley. It's literally the shit that right. I'm geeking about. This is not what I'm talking about. Like, what I'm talking about is this other... So, yeah. but, but I do want everyone in the world, especially people who are here right now. Hey, I'm not talking about anyone in particular. But, you know, just think about it. Just think about how that's a thing. Here's the thing. Don't fucking share something with somebody unless you've gone back to it after months. It's called you back. It keeps calling you back, and it's something that provokes and inspires rich thought. Okay? So anyway, what I'm getting at is when you're trying to go, okay, but what do I read? There's too much information. Well, there are people who've written things that others will die to keep alive and have spent their entire lives focusing on saying, I would rather do nothing but keep Aristotle alive. I would rather do nothing more than keep Plato alive. I would rather do nothing than keep 
marks a life. And so, though I think the disciples and acolytes and people who only focus on one thinker can be obnoxious and dogmatic and, and all of this kind of stuff, they're also an indicator that there is a there there. And I feel the same way about scripture, but it's different with scripture. Uh, every scripture has a cultural text for the for the people that it kind of speaks to. Um, there's obviously something there there. I, yeah. For me, that's a bit harder as someone who's very skeptical and blah, blah, blah. But at least it was kept alive over a long time by people who went through different regime changes and might have been persecuted for a while. And when someone has been when someone's died for something uh, or been persecuted to you know, Spinoza didn't publish uh, his ethics until it was he was dead already. He it was under his fucking pillow or in, in like it might have been in some drawer and he had a letter that said, OK, you can publish this now. He didn't write that. He, he wrote it in his lifetime. Then he sat on it, and it was like the it was like the this bomb that was going to detonate the entire worldview of every one of the people. In the, and, and guess what? He spent his life not in academia, but polishing. Like he was he was making like eyeglasses, and he's polishing polishing the lenses on eyeglasses. And he did this for a living so that he could have the time, energy, so that he could write the book. That if he published it while he was alive, they had killed him. Okay. And then people have spent their entire lives reading Spinoza and saying, no, there's something here. This is absolutely one of the most brilliant pieces of writing that's ever been written. Okay, look, if you're wondering what to read and you're torn between all these different things, the reason dead, usually white guys, but dead white guys, the reason it really is them, it's, it's not because, oh, you know, it's a cultural hegemony of fucking white guys. Obviously, there's some of them keeping it alive or whatever. But it's also the fact that you, 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 no one can really judge your thought until everyone's had time to go over it multiple times and then say, you know what? I keep going back to it and it's richer every time I come back. And yeah. And, and then, and then say, and then someone else says, yeah, you keep going back to it, but you also keep presupposing X, Y, and Z things that get it completely wrong. And then they have their arguments and then those arguments go on for 50 years. And then someone comes along and goes, both sides are getting at something, but missing something significant here. And so then a hundred years later, someone like Todd McGowan comes along after Zizek and the two of them, because it took Zizek and then it took Todd McGowan to make Zizek understandable for most people. But then they're able to say, actually, here's what's going on with Hegel. Actually, here's what's going on with, with Lacan. We're able to do this now. We can actually do this. But the people who were, this is what McGowan said in that, that, that conversation we just had this week or last week was... Yeah, no one before 1989 was reading Lacan. Like, this was like the worst translated, most misunderstood thing that ever happened. So when somebody's writing that off pre-1989, they don't even know what they're talking about. Well, yeah, I've been around long enough at this point now that I can say, that's true of almost every thinker. And so here's my thing. I want to know if people will still be reading Moldbug and Dugan in 100 years. That's what I want to know. Yeah. That's what I want to know. That's and I think, And I think that that's a good... Um... You know that that I think is about the the best answer that you can give to my my previous question, and that's sort of like honestly, I'm not even going to give like that. That's the best answer I think that you can give. I don't think that those people, um, yeah, I don't I don't think that they're going to be Dugan maybe because they'll have cultural impact uh, in in certain spheres, but even still, uh, and, and you know just just to like piggyback off what what you're saying. Um, 
this is part of my frustration with the way people treat knowledge now in this like totalistic way where they don't realize that yeah like things have a context of their time and like yeah when you come back like 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 what you said about uh you know someone might have like i don't know let's say cop right someone might have cop right and later on we realize like oh, cop was actually wrong about all this like stuff and so maybe we should just like get rid of him then it's like no, but like he was trying to get at something, which sort of now that we go back to it with the later information that we have now, it's sort of like you see it in a new light. And it's it's because at the end of the day, I feel like it's kind of like an artist, right? Like I, I'm like always amazed how I can like uh, I watched that. Um, uh, what's that, that? That movie that came out, Everything Everywhere All at Once. And I'm sitting there. Everybody walked out of that movie, like all the, you know, the good little functional literates walked out of that movie like oh my god that movie changed my life and it was so amazing and i you can ask my girlfriend i walked into that we, we watched that movie and i told her i was like this movie is just a marvel avengers fucking porn fest and the only reason people like it is because it triggered dopamine receptors in their head and made them like it and this is going to be a bad movie and we watched it and at the end of the movie i was like that was one of the most amazing movies i've ever seen and then i started like going i was like are they are the artists even aware of like what they were getting at in the film? Because it even seems like with the plot, they they don't fully grasp what they were getting at. And after reading what they said about the film, I basically came to the conclusion that like, no, I am sort of having a subjective experience with this film. Although, I to give them credit, they made the movie Mimi, and the reason that everybody liked it and thought it was so amazing is because the movie was Mimi. But they did that on purpose. And There's so, so many things we could get into with that movie, though. We it, don't. We, we probably shouldn't, because like, no. it was genius what they did with it. Where it's like, yes, they did kind of make it this Marvel movie porn fest, but they did that very consciously so that you would watch the movie, so that, that you would hopefully get some of the concepts that they were putting out. But then, I, even I think that there were concepts in there that I don't think that those guys are aware of, because I don't think that they've. I just have a feeling. I read their interviews. I don't think that they've like gotten some of the weirder shit that I've got into. And, but it's amazing that like, assume I'm right. Assume my narcissism there is correct. They're tapping into something that they're not even fully conscious of. And so that's why I don't like to throw anybody away because even if you're just grasping around in the dark, you could still be touching something and then you're like calling back and describing it. And you don't even know what it is that you just felt. And you walk past it and well, here's a good there's example. There's a sort of emergence of knowledge that I I feel like people don't appreciate. Here, here's a good example. Here's a good example. I've experienced people who will write off a thinker just because they became religious at some point. Um, oh God! I and, and 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 uh, for uh, you know, I don't want to keep going back to Catrone, but I'm going to have him back on the channel here pretty soon and. So I've been thinking about the things that he's been saying a lot on my channel, and one and, and he's a big he's a big deal to me uh, as far as like people on the left who know that the left has problems, and he's been seriously engaged with what those are and trying to figure that shit through for like since 2006, being the founder and main organizer of Platypus Affiliated Society. I think he's awesome. I really think he's great. But yeah, he when he writes off uh, Lesbian uh, Kolakowski, um, like he. He ended up just being like, well, yeah, the guy became a Catholic. He went from being a Marxist to being a Catholic. And so he writes his history of 
Marxism and his whole thing is that now as a Catholic, he doesn't believe that heaven can be achieved on earth. It's just basic conservative shit, but he's dressing it up in intellectual, philosophical kind of like, oh, he's being epistemological, skeptical, whatever. But, but really, that's what's operating behind the whole time. And here's my thing is like, yeah, wouldn't you think the same thing if you came out of Stalinism? Wouldn't you also think that, oh, they think that they've, they can make heaven on earth, but that requires actually having hell on earth as well. Like, wouldn't you think that if you've actually experienced the purges and even been involved with getting people fired from their jobs at your local university because they were too bourgeois, which is something that he did do when he was a Stalinist. Yeah. Yeah. So, and then you become a, you become some traditionalist. Well, I mean, okay, here's the thing. You wanted to be a part of something. You wanted to be a part of something that would last. You wanted to be part of something that was a positive force in the world. And that thing that you were a part of persecuted and murdered people who are part of this other tradition that is actually a part of your local culture that isn't going to go away and actually has withstood the tests of time. Even though it's not in power in terms of like having like the empire on its side anymore. It's still not going away. So then you go, well, I might not believe everything Catholics believe, but there's something here, right? I can be sympathetic to that person and, and they might even believe some crazy shit and they might not. They might just like the rituals. They might not. They might just like the community aspects. They might not. But here's the thing. And this is the main thing. If a person is doing like asking really good questions and then following through on those. And, and if they're actually doing that, my thing is they have to have some presuppositions. They might even just adhere to some normie presuppositions. But the question, are they asking really good questions? Are they following through on those really good questions? Are they developing concepts as they go? Are they doing checks on themselves as they go? And it, or is it just performative? Because obviously, like, you talk about how people can do this kind of performative rationality thing. So that's a thing still. But, yeah, for me, it's like, oh, some, so, oh someone believes something. Now they believe something else. And the, 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 the something else that they believe in is not something that I believe in. So why would I take them seriously? Well, because they're a human that had experiences, but if they're still asking really good questions and, and doing the work, then I'm going to think that there might be something there that other people aren't going to see. And then, you know, even if you're a Marxist, for instance, going back to this example, even if you're a Marxist, why would you read non-Marxists? Well, here's a fucking example, because a non-Marxist not having your commitments might see something you don't see because, hey, if your shit's failing, maybe one of your commitments that you take for granted is wrong. And them not having that commitment, don't have their perception obstructed, and are able to see something you're not able to see. It's possible. It's possible. And then you could, you could, sit, you could switch that around with anybody and everybody in every situation, and it's just always something good to be thinking about. Yeah. So. It, it's, it's um, you know, uh, I was going to say something at that point. That um, I get accused of this all the time. It's it's one of the most like it's the most gaslighting experience that I've ever fucking had. Where um, I just got called out for this the other day because I said on Twitter, you maybe you saw the thread where I was like, yep, yeah. I was talking to the, the the radical centrists. I was like, they were like, Vosh is a Marxist. I'm like, Vosh isn't a Marxist, guys. And here's why that's wrong. And here's an article on postmodern neoliberalism. And here's an explanation of what what that's sort of getting at and here's why i don't i agree boss is very uh, uh it's a, he's a terrible person in terms of like how he how he acts in the world and his beliefs but he's not a marxist and why, why someone do you like 
Go, go on. And, 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 and then what they what I got hit with was, oh, just ignore Faraday. He just parrots whatever the last perfect thing that someone said is, and he just like, you know, he just like goes around and gets brainless. You know, that almost would be a proper critique. You could almost like at one point in, in time have made that critique and have been accurate. But it's like, but even to make that critique, it presupposes that you can't do the process of what you just said, that you'll come to your ideas and then you've arrived and you're at the destination. You've exited from whatever the, 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 the end, you know, the endemic you were trying to escape from was your, your ideological endemic. You've arrived at the situation and, um, and that's it. And, uh, and if you keep uh, exploring, then you're either a crazy person, you're a schizo, or uh, you don't have a center. There's no center to you, you know? Um, I really resent, I, it, it infuriates me. I resent that. I resent that sort of like attitude that people have. Um, I think it's a natural attitude, perhaps. I think people are drawn to cults. And, and I think the cults are actually a very functional way of, well, they were a functional way of operating. Well, I want to I want to talk about uh, two things before we close this out. I don't know how are you feeling. It's midnight where you're at. I'm feeling good. I mean, if you, uh, you know, so I'm gonna I'm gonna leave the call up to you. Okay, um, perfect. So what I'm know, gonna you've do? You've got to think about you've got to think about how long you want it to be. But I'm feeling good. I would like to use the bathroom though. Well, and when you go to the bathroom, you can watch from your phone, and uh, and when we come back, I will be talking for a minute before you come back on because there's gonna be this lag for you between watching on your phone and then what I'm saying, right? Because what I'm going to do is I'm going to play two videos. And and then when we come back, I'll talk about... I still... I've been saying this whole time. I'm going to talk about that other factor that makes people, like, I think the debate bro sphere, when they use theory, if they use theory, or however they do philosophy, the what makes it so obnoxious. And look, I'm not... You keep going back to bashing on Vosh. I actually want to get into that. I don't. I don't want to bash on him... In the in a completely in a completely uncritical way, and you do so. That's why I want to come back to that. We can we can bash on on Vosh. We can uh, talk about what I think are the kind of environmental conditions of the possibility of what makes actual this situation where people do this with philosophy you know, theory. You know what? I actually do. I actually would like to be. Yeah, I actually do want to do that because again, you know, I, I think that there is a there is an atmosphere that has creeped. Vosh is a product of society, you know? Destiny is a product of society. All these people are products of a very, um, if there was intention behind it, I would call it nefarious, you know? <laughs> yeah, yeah, okay, we'll get into it. And we, then, could, we could go into the work to the degree that there's intention behind but, it. But what I'm going to do is I'm going to play my Baudrillard remix video, which is like, yeah. it's it's one of my favorite things that I ever made that's not, you know, me talking or whatever. And then... The uh, so uh, yeah, folks. If you haven't seen Rick Roderick before, or if you have, you're gonna love this video. I gu I guarantee it. And then the other thing I'm gonna play is related to January sixth, because um, I do want to talk about radicalization a little bit more. And I said I wanted to be sympathetic to, uh, well, not to like shooters of schools and churches or terrorists or. You know, but I, what I want to do is I want to talk about the people who are at least more responsible um, for a lot of this shit, uh, who scapegoat and focus on them when there are feasible solutions that don't require civil war uh, that can actually be moved on, but that's not what they're interested in. 
Um, and we're going to get into that. And so this whole Democrats wanting civil war thing, uh, which has kind of become a thing, and not not all Democrats, but just like some of the, the I've got three grandmas in my life who think that we're going to have a civil war. And yeah. and you getting so blackpilled by January 6th, and I'm over here like, we just had seven months of riots, and now people are acting like this was the worst thing that ever happened. I do not understand why people you know think... what blackpilled me the most about January 6th? What? It was the liberal response. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I was first, first blackpilled by the fact that, like, oh my god, they're really willing... I, I, I've rolled, I've reeled back. I don't really view that as a proper insurrection. Although there was sort of like actors at the front of the line doing, doing things. But like, what really the second black pill that was even deeper was the liberal reaction where I was like, whether they're aware of it or not, they're going to instigate a civil war. Yeah. Like they're yeah. going to play their part in this little dance, and and they're going to push it right to the right as far as they can push it. Yeah. So uh, yeah. I want to I want to I want to get into that because I, I, I there's so many things that in what you just said that I want to get into. But what I'm going to do is I'm just going to start playing. Uh, it's going to be the Baudrillard video and then it's going to be the other video that I was talking about. Um, and that will give me the second, you know, the, the moment I need to be able to step away. Folks, a lot of you are like trying to keep a lot of you are trying to stay awake right now. And I just wanted to tell you, you don't have to. You can just go to sleep and finish this later. I do not make the, the I do not make any of my content for a primarily live audience even though I love having people here live obviously. Like I really do. It's like the best. But look, don't 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 stay up past your bedtime if you're frying your brain being up right now. Just just go to sleep for the love of God. And uh but if you're but if you're here for it and you're going to be here for it, then I'm uh, then I'm excited that you're here for it. I can't wait to uh, come back to this conversation because I could happily go for another hour. Um, and honestly, like for me, I'm going to try to stay up as late as possible because tomorrow night I'm going to stay up all night and work until 6 p.m. or 6 a.m. So, you know, but let's do this. I'm going to switch to the starting soon screen. I'm going to pull up a window share or a window capture. And uh, you can just mute yourself over there if you want. Um, and then we're going to start with the Baudrillard video. So, yeah, Caleb, I'll just pull that up on your phone so you can go around and get some tea, get some water, get some. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to actually start a tea kettle and make myself some tea right now. And, uh, folks, I'll be right back. We're just going to play this and uh, enjoy. really sense that you're twisting above. You know, that sort of sickly sense that you're twisting above a sort of abysmally too much of something. This seems to me a fine sort of mood characterization for the postmodern trajectory. A, a sense, sense of vertigo before all this information. Baudrillard is perhaps the most important uh, theorist that can be characterized as postmodern. The postmodern is a blurring of the lines between human beings and machines, a blurring of the line between reality and image. It is a world in which reality is simply that which can be simulated. 
Xeroxed. Copy. In the world of Baudrillard, social relations have disappeared between humans because humans have begun to disappear. What were these concepts anyway? Like the man, like man and world, except concepts by which the world was regulated, policed, mapped, and controlled. All four of which are becoming more and more difficult to do under this situation of rapidly increasing complexity, which I've mentioned many times, and I mean system complexity at every level. What Baudrillard is doing is basically to trace the symptoms and tendencies of the trajectory of the postmodern. In fact, Baudrillard thinks that reality itself is in the process of disappearing, the real what has been learned and understood under the name of the real. For Baudrillard, the apocalypse has already occurred. It wasn't religious or anything. It was not atomic bombs. At some point in the development of technology, human beings ceased to be the reason of things, and things took on their own reasons, technological things. The simulation has outrun the so-called reality. That concept in Baudrillard he calls the hyper-real. Hyper-reality is more real than real. This is ad actually, sound if some of this sounds like advertising slogans, good. Because in Baudrillard, the, the heritage of philosophy and social theory has passed over into advertising. There the way people deal with this is interesting. They deal with it as a form of complexity, a word I've used probably too many times. It makes them people caught in this cusp between an old world and an old paradigm that is dying and a new one that it cannot really yet be born. And we find ourselves in that space. And it draws us to people who say, it's just that simple. That's the most powerful political rhetoric in a world with a postmodern trajectory. God, how we would love it if someone could tell us anything was just that simple. First attack on our democracy since the Civil War. Fucking A, man. Glad to see you guys. Good evening. 150 days since the worst single act of political violence since the Civil War. January 6th was worse than 9-11. Worst act of political violence since the Civil War. The likes of which I don't think it has, has existed since probably since the Civil War. I think we're in the most perilous point in time since the advent of the Civil War. I do too. The worst attack against America's democracy probably since the Civil War. Unprecedented, at least since the Civil War. The worst attack on our republic since the Civil War. The fact is that we faced on January 6th the most serious attack on our democracy 
uh, probably since the Civil War. This is as fraught a July 4th as the nation has had really since the Civil War. I mean, we have questions uh, that we really haven't asked in a very, probably since uh, the Civil War. The most destructive thing to American democracy is probably since the Civil War. Nothing comes close this side of the Civil War. Six months since the worst attack on American democracy, arguably, probably since the Civil War, and it's still not over. Now, the White House says the president's also going to say that these laws they're trying to enact in Texas are the biggest threat to voting rights since the Civil War. Literally, we're facing the most significant test of our democracy since the Civil War. That's not hyperbole. Since the Civil War. In calling the wave of state voting laws that are upon us the greatest threat to our democracy since the Civil War, his talking about voting rights, the way he did it, and the way he defined it. The most significant test of our democracy since the Civil War. It's not just another layer of rhetoric. All of this is the piece of, a piece of the same puzzle, John. They are all on the right creating the biggest threat to our democracy since the Civil War. The biggest threat to our constitutional republic since the Civil War. The worst challenge to our democracy since the Civil War. You and I have had this conversation for well over a month where I've talked about it being the most perilous point since the Civil War. But at any rate, hey guys, I can't for ice cream. All right, and we are... Are we back? I'm back. Are you back? While uh, while we wait for the return of Caleb, I think he's actually... Remember I said that he's going to be behind probably 20 seconds or whatever. Um, I'm going to go ahead and pull up a window capture on OBS here so that I can... Uh, I'm going to do my Duolingo. I actually need to... Dave's Daily Duo, everybody! Welcome to Dave's Daily... I'm here if you're, if you're talking to me. Yeah, now I am. Welcome back. Um, but I'm gonna do my my daily Duolingo <laughs> while we're while we're talking because I uh, I don't want to mess up my streak and I, I need to do it really quick here. So, but I I usually do it while multitasking because I think that just having like a very yeah das Museum ist in der Nähe. I'll try to turn it down a little bit. Is there a way to turn it down? That's the question. Yeah, das Museum. I don't want to listen right now. Yeah, das Museum ist in der Nähe. Yeah, the museum is nearby. Eine Kirche und eine Bibliothek. There's got to be a way to turn down Duolingo. That's my problem. Actually, you know what? Instead of doing it on here and screen sharing it and everything like that, I'm just going to do it on my phone while we hang out and talk. And the thing is, is I, I'm going to, I'm still here. I multitask and do Duolingo all the time. I just have to do it really quick, everybody. And, you know, if I'm going to be a good influence in any way, then it's just by doing, <laughs> it's by doing my, my language exercises. So. Here we go. But yeah, so how did you seen that uh that's that second video, the one on uh, the Civil War stuff? Have you have you seen that one before? Guys, is Dave talking to me right now? It's like he's muted. You can't hear me? You can't hear me? You can't hear me? Oh shit. There we go. <laughs> I'm an idiot. I muted it from Skype and from Voice Meter. I only needed to voice. Well, I just figured I had to say something at some point just in case you were talking to me, but I couldn't tell if you were still talking to the chat. Everyone else could hear me. But you can No, everybody else could hear you. I just you were just muted in here. 
Cool. All right. Well, what did I say? I said that I was going to be doing my Duolingo. I was wondering why you didn't laugh at the fact that I was doing my Duolingo. Because um, I was I, like... I, I've been... Uh, okay, tell me if... Uh, I want you to tell me if this is a waste of my fucking time. So, you know, I have this specific interest in these French philosophers. And then I keep thinking, should I learn French so I can actually read it in, like, the original text? And then I got Duolingo. Someone gave me a, a Duolingo membership, and then I thought about learning French. I have no interest in learning French outside of this. Is it worth? Is it still worth the time? Uh, yeah, I'd say it's still worth your time, even though I'm not a hundred percent sure that you can really learn a language on Duolingo. Here's so there's an uh, ar- there's an argument between people about whether you can really learn a language on Duolingo, but here's my argument in defense of doing it. Because I like to do this thing where I bracket out both sides of the argument and all of the reasons that they bring up and then say even if the side that says you can't learn the language is uh, correct, we are helping uh, we're, we're helping develop the, the means for gamified educational platforms, um, which I, th- I find that that development to be extremely important to be able to make it addicting to learn to be able to make it like it's like you're playing a game uh is good now if it's if it's there yet or not that's part of the question obviously some people think a lot of people think it works a lot of people think it does work now they're not trying to read french theory of course which is only gonna take you so far but you know even like learning a little latin uh and greek on duolingo even though it's like modern greek you know, learning some basic Greek and Latin and learning some basic French and German uh, and Spanish, which I've been doing all of those, as well as Polish and Ukrainian and Russian and us uh, Chinese and Japanese. And Korean. I'm, I'm, I'm literally like learning like 20, but I'm not learning. Tw- I'm not learning 20 languages. I'm learning the base. I'm, lear- I'm learning the base components of these languages. I'm learning the sounds of these languages. I'm allowing my tongue to feel out the base components of these languages. That is cool because I don't know anyone else who's doing that just for this fuck, just for the fucking sake of it, you know, cause usually people are like, Oh, I'm going to become a, a polylingual, like blah, blah, blah. I'm like, nah, man, I just want to have like, I want to be able to hear something and go, nah, they're Polish people. They're talking Polish. I want to be able to hear it and go, ah, Polish, uh, dobry viece, you know, I know how to say do rivice if I hear someone speaking Polish. I don't know how to then follow it up with, no, I don't know any fucking Polish. Don't talk to me. (laughs) (laughs) So you want to know just enough to make yourself look like an asshole when you go traveling. Yeah, 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 precisely. But no, actually, you know, being able to feel out all these different languages is giving me a sense of which ones I might want to inhabit more and which ones I might want to actually dive in deeper. And it helped me come to the realization that I really do want to go a lot further with Spanish for sure. Not just at the speaking level. Uh, I want to be able to live in Mexico and get around in Mexico. Absolutely. That's a goal of my life, but also I'd like to be able to read a thousand years of solitude. And, um, that's like, you know, that's like, that's a little bit higher in literature, you know? Um, but you know, but that's a long-term goal. I could be, I could be 80 and then read a thousand years of solitude. And then, you know, I'll come on live stream and be like, everyone, I finally did it. And everyone's going to be like, Dave, <laughs> yes, <laughs> you've been talking about this since 2022. Uh, you know, 
Yeah. I, I just want to say that I'm in support of, as, as, as a fellow, I don't know if you have ADHD, but as an ADHD, I am in support of this because um, I wouldn't have known I had an interest in theory if I didn't have this sort of like sporadic way of just like, because some, someone, some people could criticize me. Oh, Faraday thinks he knows anything about this. He shouldn't even speak about these issues whatsoever because all he has is a constellation of concepts with no context. And it's like, <laughs> fair, like, okay, like, fair, but then, like, you know, like, Faraday shares memes on his Twitter, and he hasn't even read to lose. And it's like, like, fair, but at the same time, it's like, I think it's perfectly, and this, and this goes back to the point of functional literacy, I think it's perfectly fine to engage in a pop version of something or a surface level version of something as long as you acknowledge like what that is and right. that can like be a jumping off point you know that can be like your diving board and then you're like all right now i'm like actually gonna go jump in the water and try to swim you know like right. i think that's perfect right yeah and then there's also this question of base literacy so you know i'm, I'm all i did a, I've, I've i've talked on the stream in the last couple months about hybrid literacy you know being literate in a lot of different things but then i started thinking about base literacy now i was supposed to do a stream about that uh like two weeks ago and then i just never did it and i've been rethinking everything about it because my whole approach is changing and i actually just have to rethink some things part of the change is the change over from thinking about hybrid literacy uh to thinking about base literacy because i i'm not i'm not i, I think that you know uh, the the goal of the, of education should be that we are base literate in almost all of the things that matter for understanding our world, right? And so, but base literacy is very different from like, you know, a, having taken an introductory course and then moved on in your life. It's very different from, from you know, so for instance, with Spanish, you know, you take seven years of Spanish, Okay, until you're basically fluent and you know the grammar rules. Well, I mean, that's a form of literacy that you have now. That's not the same as base literacy. I think base literacy would be like uh, you, you, you understand some of the base components of the language, of its grammar, how it, how it feels different, like how it operates different. And you, you hear it, you know it, you're able to speak it somewhat. A person who's getting into philosophy and theory, do you have to be like... Like uh, how I was talking earlier, I was like, I'm here for life. I'm going to read all of these people three times. Uh, do you have to be that way if you want to be able to use philosophy or theory? No, but you should also like, you know, you know, maybe don't start a channel where you, you know, have, you know, you stand there and you talk about it like you know what you're talking about and like you're here to teach other people. Maybe instead you should be bringing on people who know about this stuff and then they're teaching you and you're kind of, you know... At, I'm not saying that you never put yourself in the teacher position because I do think that putting yourself in the teacher position is a big part of learning something. But there are a lot of channels where someone's like, they think that they've got to present themselves as the one who's got this all figured out, that they've surveyed it all, they've got it all figured out, now they're going to trans, now they're going to give it all to you. And sometimes they do stuff that's horrendous, where they get fundamental distinctions that. If you don't if you don't get this fundamental distinction, then you don't even get anything that philosopher is doing, and, and now everything you're saying about them is wrong, right? Um, and and but now that video exists on the internet and people are watching it, right? So 
I, I get why people want to gatekeep it. I get I get why people want to be like, well, you shouldn't be doing it. Like, and also people work their asses off so that they actually can be a sort of specialist on whatever it is. The thing is, is like, I, I don't know. I just I want to I want to I want it to be a lot more normalized for people to be able to learn and get it wrong in in the open, while at the same time bringing on people who are obsessive about these things. And there to be a sort of alliance between people who are getting into something and people who are obsessively like that have, have been at it for a long time. There would be an alliance where it's like you might not ever you, you might go deep for a little while in this. And while you're going deep into it, you're bringing someone on, blah, blah, blah. But also you don't have to like not everybody has to become a specialist in it. You don't have to be. So here's an example. You could learn the violin. I, I, I always go back to the example of the violin. Um, you could learn it a little bit. And then realize it's not for you, but what you learned of it is enough that now you have a much deeper appreciation when you actually hear it played. All right. The same exact thing applies to philosophy and theory. So. So, um, I agree. And I think that, um, there needs to be these sort of spaces. I mean, that's what I'm going to make my channel, just a sort of space to interview people and just sort of explore ideas and, and make that as a disclaimer on the outset, you know? Um, yeah, that's good. That's one, you know, I, I, that's one thing I appreciate, but I don't know what people feel about the, the Hans Jörg Muller guy, the carefree wandering. I appreciate that. He puts a little disclaimer at the beginning of the video where he's like, you know, this is, we're just sort of like talking about things here. So I've liked everything I've seen, but I've, I've liked everything I've seen by that guy. Actually. Yeah, I, I like him so far. I watched two videos, maybe. And I liked them. And then when Then and Now did this like critique of him, I thought it was like a really good video by Then and Now up until the part where it was critiquing him. And I remember thinking, wow, you haven't even tried to think about what this guy's actually doing or saying. Like, Yeah, well, that's always, the, that's always what the debunkers end up doing. And honestly, you know, they do that to the right as well. As someone who's like thoroughly studied the right at this point, a lot of those bread tube debunking videos are... You know, oh, do I care about us being fair to people? I do care, actually, because it matters. Because the truth fucking matters. I'm sorry, but, like, you're being unfair to what they're saying. You're being really uncharitable. And for the, the random lay person, that might not be a problem. But for someone who's actually engaged in that shit, and then they've engaged it on... This is, like, my big, you know, worry about these sort of, like... You know, you have your Petersonian types, but then you have the people that are layers deeper than that, right? The, the, the people that I'm not really trying to shout out clout to. The reason Brett Tubers aren't interacting with them is because they can't keep up with those motherfuckers. And when you run around, you know, doing all these like little like semi straw men of Peterson, you know, people can see that, you know, a person who's getting into those ideas, they can see that. And if they didn't pick up on some of the things that they found distasteful that you were pointing out, then you're just going to rat it. You're just going to push them. You're going to push them because they're going to be like, wow, you're disingenuous. And I can really fucking tell like it smells off your breath. So there's that. You know, and then um, I think that's crucial. The thing I w that's crucial. Yeah, it drives me crazy. I was super into Peterson critique for a while because I just felt like it was historically relevant. There was so much that you can sure. take out of it. It's like he's drawing together some really interesting things, repackaging it in his own way. But a person who comes to him for X, Y or Z reasons, not the reasons that the person who's critiquing him is focused on. um, needs to at least hear you acknowledge like those other reasons or they're not going to take you seriously. Right. So it's yeah, like the prob my problem with the bread tubers is they, they either don't recognize that or they can't do that. 
Um, and it's really frustrating. Um, the other thing I wanted to say about, you know, the sort of like these spaces and in, in this online education, I think that there, there needs to be, you know, even kind of touching on your point of time energy. Sorry, I'm eating while I'm talking to you. I'm playing Duolingo be, while you're talking. It's great. Keep going. There needs to be a sort of, um, uh, there needs to be a simplifying of these ideas. There needs to be a sort of mainstreaming and a popification of these ideas because you're, you're never going to get past people's time energy uh, uh, constraint otherwise. And I like what you're saying about we need to have a base literacy. And to anybody that says, well, we're never going to be able to get to a base literacy of all these really convoluted ideas. First of all, we can. Like, you can criticize meme culture and you can criticize, like, the the – the, the simplification of ideas, but it works. Like I've shown people memes before. Like I've been able to like explain like concepts that are, you know, probably like someone would normally think that they're way above their pay grade. There's a way that you can explain it. Cause a lot of times there's like an intu intuitive, there's an intuitive sort of like uh, a way to translate that. Right. But on top of that, like we've already seen where, like liberalism did this, right? Where liberalism took all these ideas that at one point men during the Renaissance would have thought, well, these are not for the common man. These are for the, you know, the ivory towers and the common man would just never understand these things. Um, another good example uh, yes. is religion, by the way. You know, religion's really good at like bundling these high, you know, concepts down into, you know, simple things. But like liberalism did this with, you know, it's fucking William F. Buckley's and with its like, uh, you know, it's Dick Cavett shows and all these sort of like, you know, the the, the, the the height of like, you know, talk, you know, talk show television during like the 60s and 70s. There was a really good effort of of educating the public and giving them a base literacy. It used to be you go to college and you get a liberal arts degree. Right. And that would give you a base education. I think that there's a way to do it. And I see people getting a base education online. It's just a really bad one. You know, yeah, so I don't 100%. believe that you can't do it. 100%. You know, and there's something to the idea that you don't understand something if you can't explain it to a five-year-old or a fifth-grade intellect or whatever the fuck people say. There's different versions of it. I spend a little bit of time in the preface and a lot of time in the introduction and then chapter one of my book basically debunking that bullshit. I fucking hate it. I think it's a constraint on thought. It's shackles on the mind that make it so that we're not able to actually develop ourselves. We have to be able to think things through and talk things through with other people for ourselves before we get into that point when we're actually able to do it for other people. And if while we're doing it for ourselves, everyone keeps doing this whole fucking deflationary dismissive fucking bullshit where they're trying to tell you that, oh, well, you shouldn't, well, you don't know what you're talking if you can't do it for a fucking uh shut the fuck up that's bullshit no we're thinking through for ourselves and this was actually i was talking i actually you know i in in the in uh in the introduction uh to waypoint i i, I mentioned it um to you right before the stream this this professor uh at uh university of chicago who's basically just giving like a writing class and is talking about how uh you know we're, we're not trained to write for uh, for an audience that's not paid to read us because you know we're, we're trained to write for teachers and they're they're, tr they're they're paid to care and they usually still don't but at least they're paid to care and so um you know real writing though isn't for an audience that's paid to care about what you have to say and so 
what does that mean? You know, there's, and then he, he, and one of the things that he gets into is this, you know, writing for yourself so you can find clarity and, 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 and get a grasp of what it is that you're, you're thinking through. And then there's writing for other people once you've done that. Now, obviously if you have like a mass surplus of time energy and you're only really focused on like, you've got like your soapbox and you basically keep talking about the same shit and that's your whole fucking world. You could definitely spend a lot of time writing things out for yourself and then writing it for other people. But if you're a part of this fucking accelerated world and in my case, working at fucking Amazon and trying to also develop yourself, um, you're going to have to come up with some other kind of approach. Right. And, and so for me, it's like, I'm listening to books and I can never really talk about the stuff that I'm listening to in the moment because I'm still trying to figure out what the fuck they're talking about. And one way of accelerating it is to listen to something that somebody else is reading intently and taking notes on. And then you've got like this impression of what was said and you've got like some things that stuck with you, but you've still got a bunch of questions with you. And then you have a conversation with that person who's been reading it intently. And then you will get to ask a lot of questions of that person and they're going to appreciate you for doing that because you're obviously not like a, like a, like a completely unprepared audience that has no idea what's going on, which is like, by the way, if you're teaching in the university today, most people in philosophy class didn't do the reading. And so it's kind of shitty that you have to assume an audience of people who didn't do the reading. Well, I'm doing groundwork to the metaphysics of morals with uh, my friend Brian and also hopefully Andrew of Master Signified Bodies. We're going to do it in three weeks. I'm listening to it at Amazon while I'm working and then Brian's taking like thoroughgoing notes and I'm sure Andrew will take a bunch of notes too because he actually has some surplus time being in the Navy and then when in the conversation I'm just going to have a lot of questions and that shit's going to clarify the shit out of it for me and then six months later I'm going to listen to it again and then a year and a half later when someone said some shit about Kant and I keep thinking about it, I'm going to go back to it. But the, a part of it with ADHD, with embracing ADHD learning styles and experimenting with the new means for learning that are at our disposal today. I think that this, this kind of mentality shift to being like, you don't have to understand it the first time, but you can still be like, I think Kant is saying this about that, you know, in reference to something. And that's not going to, Oh, I've got a new follower on Duolingo. Thanks. Bijou Smith. I thought he went to bed like two hours ago. It's funny. But because um, he was in the stream. But uh, that's dope. Hell yeah. I love followers on Duolingo because they encourage me to study my language more. And I actually have a link that I'm going to share with everybody. So if you want to follow me, you can also uh, get me a free week of Duolingo Plus if you if you use this fucking... It's like an, oh, here he comes with the shilling. Let's listen to this. No, it's, I've got two free weeks of Duolingo Plus right now because I've shared this link before. And then people... Yeah, I know. Hey, I don't mind shilling for Duolingo. I believe in Duolingo. They're, they're not paying me <laughs> oh, to so say it's, this. It's authentic. It's from the heart. You know? I also love Audible, but I, I'm not paid by Audible. I, I also don't use audible very much but i do love it i love what they're doing but you know it i also love skillshare i mean a dead ass like there are things that are advertised on every podcast that you get sick of hearing about where it's like skillshare is cool skillshare is fucking sweet i actually like really like it as a platform it's a great idea it's too bad that it's part of platform capitalism they're just going to keep raising the fees on that they're going to keep paying people less and eventually it's going to get all hollowed out and it's going to be bullshit but it's going through a golden period netflix is going through a golden period disney plus is going through a golden period a lot of these platforms are going through their golden periods right now get what you can from them while you can and for me duolingo 
is one of the like win 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 all the way down like as far as it goes like that's it it's right there so yeah you're right i'm shilling for that <laughs> that was a fucking perfect ad jesus christ you really should get a sponsorship after that one oh give bravo. me my money do i like to what, what do they say Fight Club? i would like to thank the academy yes like, jesus but when we're, okay, so, when so, we're, so the ADHD learning styles and embracing that. Right. So, and uh, the, you know, for me, part of it is like I got over my, my block to listening to robot readers and now everything that can be found in PDF form, which is almost everything, can be listened to. And because it's hard. So I make my own MP3s at the speeds that I prefer. They're only for me. I have a whole storehouse of things that I've listened to in the last two years. And a lot of times it's because I would like, I was working places doing manual labor where I didn't have service and, or I'd be go, I'd be driving and I'd be going out of service and in and out of service. And so I didn't want to be relying on a robot reader that was like re requiring cloud or online stuff. And so I'd record using MP3, like audacity, make them into MP3s off my computer. Um, and, and, and I, and so then I have like this, this arsenal of things that I've listened to the first time that maybe I didn't fully understand, but now they're on my phone. Cause I got like a phone that had like a really big SD card for that shit. And now here's the thing though, that something else came out of that, that I didn't realize would come out of it. Um, and that is that, um, the moment that I am interested in a book because someone was talking about it, they think it's relevant. They think it's useful. It, it, it somehow is a serious intervention in the conversation or train of thought that I'm on or whatever. Then I, I don't, think about it anymore. I don't just sit there and think that this person said that and now I need to read it or whatever. I literally just push play and then clean my fucking room or I push play and, and I, and I work out or I push play and I start driving. Um, and, and it's a robot. It's, I'm not getting as much out of it if I took notes line by line, but I used to, especially when I was first really getting into like you know, the life of the mind. One of the things that was a huge problem for me was I was taking too many notes and I was taking too much time on every page. And the thing is, is you don't know if a book's going to call you back to it until you've done a first pass. So you just got to get that first pass over with fast. And the thing is, is you might get through the introduction and then realize everything that this person told me about this book is wrong. They didn't, they fucking read the back of it. They don't even know what they're talking about. I can move on. I don't need this book. But then six months later you go, Oh, That'd be useful for this other thing, though, because clearly this person's thought about this other thing a lot more than me. So I need to actually see what they had to say about it. And then you can always go back to it. So it's like it's so it's a, I had I always talk about the window shopping mentality, but it's also like the speed dating mentality. And so if you embrace that ADHD is not a fucking curse anymore, um, especially because, you know, the education system, you got to think people we always think about smartphones when we think of the culture of distraction, because obviously billions of dollars and and all the greatest minds for the last 100 years has gone into marketing and propaganda technologies and the smartphones i mean the internet fucking comes out of like the security state like it comes out of anti-communism it comes out of the cold war it comes out you know it's like and then you know so we're so distracted on our devices Ooh, well yeah it's not it's not just distracted we're in an attention economy moreover um like the, the, the means at our disposal are untapped. We, we don't really know what they're capable of. And we're kind of finding out like the negative ways, but there's also positive things here. And the, but the education system is a part of the reason I think a lot of people are so distracted because if you have a soul or a heart or like a fucking ounce of criticality about you, 
if you have like any sort of resistance to being programmed to being treated like all of your interests are irrelevant unless they can align with the arbitrary interests of authority figures um then you're going to resist you're not you're going to break underneath those pressures and if you don't break and you make it out you might be a little resentful and you might actually have a chip on your shoulder against education or the life of the mind because i mean ultimately you know the education system acts as though and plays the role of being responsible for cultivating the life of the mind for its you know students or whatever but yeah, the reason I keep throwing this, I'm, I'm like holding this book so much, is because it's called Weapons of Mass Destruction by John Taylor Gatto. It was actually just published like a few years ago. And it's, you know, it, I would say it's one of the really important works of critical pedagogy, which is a, a tradition, a heretical, uh, heterodox uh, tradition within the academy of people who are critical of what's really going on with education. And, you know, I'd say like half the literature I've read from that tradition is fucking bunk bullshit. There's some good shit from all of them, like Ivan Illich is someone who uh, Justin Murphy talked about a little while back when he had Nina Powers on. I like Ivan Illich, but the fact is, is the guy was not that rigorous of a thinker. He wasn't that rigorous, but he was onto some things. That's for sure. Well, John Taylor Gatto has fucking done some research though in this line and talks about the, like the, the, what, how, when progressives like uh, specifically Woodrow Wilson, in 1910, you know, he's rolling out this new regime of public education and it's being sold to us as though it's like all just about, you know, uplifting minds or whatever. He also just says, you know, no, there's going to be two classes of people in this country. There's going to be Those early progressives are like super villains. Like, they, dude, like it's like completely whitewashed throughout history. And then people like don't people never stop to think how that might be just influencing their current thinking. You know, in their current sort of like movements and attitudes, and you know, maybe the Great Reset is not such a bad thing, and maybe a technocracy isn't such the worst thing, and it's like, oh, but yeah, you go back and like that early progressive movement. Yeah, yeah, and so yeah, he well, because you know they're dealing with workers rising up all over the world, and and there's the anarcho-socialist communist. You know, and back then it wasn't just like some online shit where people are, you know, basically doing foot soldiery for the fucking democratic party or whatever there was like there was like actually mass immiseration of the working class whenever people striked they were getting murdered they didn't have the weekend yet <laughs> they didn't have like the eight hour working day yet and so you know people are fighting for that shit and you know they had been throughout the 19th century and so here you're in the beginning of the 20th century woodrow wilson's like nah bitch there'll be none of that fuck you fuck you you want to be a worker but also think, hell no, we'll have, Disneyland. we'll have none of it. And so he, he says that, you know, with our education system, there will be, uh, a, there will be two classes. One will be, he says, by necessity, significantly larger than the other. And will be of people who forego the luxuries of a liberal education. And will, ins and by that he means the liberal arts, which means a liberating, the liberating arts that's what that means. It doesn't mean liberal, but it means liberating arts. And so he's saying that there's going to be a mass, one class, very large people who have to forego the luxuries of liberating education. And then there will be a much smaller class that gets that. Um, and, and he says it's going to be the distinction between knowers and doers. And the doers are going to be the ones who make society 
with their sweat and blood and toil. And the, 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 the knowers are going to be the influencers, the role models, the priests, the teachers, the media talking figureheads yeah. whose, whose job is to legitimate the system. And they might do it in a progressive way and they might do it in a reactionary way, but they're ultimately participating in the same fucking thing. All right. So th that's there with Woodrow Wilson, but also like, you know, you have the Carnegie's and the Rockefeller's and they're. Those guys aren't just billionaires by today's standards. Like they were something. They were something beyond that. Like God, King of Doom, yeah. fucking levels. And as a smaller field, it was. It was. There was a lot fewer. Right? I think there's like over. There's over a thousand billionaires right now. There was not a thousand Carnegies, right? Like there was just Carnegie. There was just Rockefeller. And these two, they called them moguls, right? Uh, or they call them tycoons or whatever. But these fucking guys, they were more power. They were more powerful than presidents, that's for sure. Um, and they had a lot less competition. And their their uh, their uh, think tanks and institutes and everything like that were rolling out like plans in line with this progressive view of education. Um, and so the 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 when we talk, you'll get good stuff in classes. And I think the people who are in high school right now, uh, which by the way is not my audience. Well, let's be honest. My audience is 24 through 40 year olds. I've looked at my statistics. It's a hundred percent 24 through 40 year olds. There's not a fucking 18 year old on my channel except for Telos bound. He's the only one who's been here for the last two years. Um, and, and they're all male. I might add hundred <laughs> percent of them. So if, if you break that in some way, if, if you're in my chat and you actually don't, if that doesn't count for you, then actually say something. Oh, Telos bound is in the chat. <laughs> The only 18-year-old who's ever watched any of my content. Anyway, um, yeah, but uh, so, but if you are like currently within this education system, hey, you can make the most out of it. You can get something out of it. It's kind of like when you're at work. Yeah, are you being exploited? Sure, but you can still get something out of it. There's things that you can do to make yourself better at certain things. Like you might get better at streamlining processes, and then that becomes a skill that translates into when you're doing things for yourself, you're able to streamline processes. Yeah, nothing wrong with that. Look, if you have to do something, you can turn it into doing it in a way that betters you hopefully without getting duped by it. And the thing is, is like the professional managerial class is that much smaller class that Woodrow Wilson was talking about of these influencers, of these media people, of these role models, of these priests, of the secular priests of the, uh, it's the, it's the, this is where we get into the whole, you know, you've got the, the, the cathedral, right? But this is, I mean, it's a direct response to workers organizing and saying, no, they think that we'll have like this post-class society where everybody can read books and play a violin. No, we won't, motherfuckers. And this education system that gets rolled out, where now you have teachers who are part of the system who think that they're being, they're resisting it, right? They think they're resisting it. Yeah, but you still are telling people that they have to focus on math at 2 p.m. And that they have to focus on English at 3 p.m. And that when they go home at the end of the day, they have to prepare to do it again. And that their inherent interests that stem from things that are probably related to their actual talents, their, in, their inherent immediate interests are not to be honored, not to be validated, not to be exercised or developed in any way, shape or form unless it correlates to and can be consumed into the actual interests of these arbitrary authority figures whose real lesson is not whatever's on the syllabus, the, the invisible syllabus in critical pedagogy, they call it, they call it the, the, the invisible syllabus. The real syllabus is this is when you sit down, this is how you sit down, this is how you raise a question, and then this is how you succeed in our society, and if you don't succeed in our society, it's because you didn't follow the rules for those 
most formative years of your life while we were brainwashing you? So, 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 uh, I, I want to add some that. First of all, there's an echo on my on your end. Um, okay, I think it's gone now. So, uh, a couple things. First of all, to, to piggyback off the very last thing you said, last year I. I didn't really understand what ADHD was until about two years ago. So I, I, I I'm glad you're late. bringing it back up because I, let me just reassert the whole fucking context of what I'm saying is that ADHD is a natural reaction to mass brainwashing yeah. that is historically contingent and, and unique and yeah. only came about within the last hundred years. Nothing like this has ever existed in the history of humanity. It's just like the education system existing the way it is right now is the same as the phone, except that we take the school for certain, but we, the phone, we're like, wow, people aren't critical Wait, about how they have this phone. Specifically is, is the new manifestation, the, the symptoms of ADHD or the, what, what are you saying exactly? I think the symptoms and the experience of ADHD is the experience of people trying to hold on to their souls. But do you think that, like, the, the, do you do you believe that there are there are they would call them neuroatypical? But do you think that there are certain people whose brains, because the, the 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 traditional way of thinking about it nowadays is that there's people whose brains don't like they're not really built to function in this society that the society doesn't value that way of thinking. And so it just pushes them off to the side. And I mean, I see a lot of people that are homeless. I like, I swear, I think some part of the reason I think I get along with homeless people and can chat them up so easily is I think that they're ADHD because I talk to them and they're like talking about this thing and that thing and that thing. And they got all these ideas. And then I'm like, Oh, and no one ever saw value in that in your life. And they just like completely discarded you because you couldn't sit and do fucking math. Is that, is that what you're saying? Or you're saying that you, you believe that the society is drawing out symptoms, that it's like manifesting symptoms? Yeah, I think that the hard claim that I was making to make my point, so it's not exactly like a hard point that I want to, you know, assert is absolute reality. Oh, okay, yeah, that's fair But enough. the hard point is that ADHD is a defense mechanism so that the human population is not actually easy to brainwash. And anytime you try to do in mass brainwashing to to tell people that their entire lives need to be reducible to the commodity form of labor power and that you, and that success in the system means being interested in enforcing and following through on the arbitrary deadlines and interests of authority figures who are teaching you to do that for bosses. Um, yeah, anytime that that happens, we're going to have fucking people become neurodivergent and they're going to go divergent in lots of different directions. And then I, there's this way of naturalizing it and transhistoricizing it where it's like autistic people just always existed and fucking, uh, and, 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 uh, you know, ADHD people and bipolar people and borderline people and, and, and schizophrenic people, they just always existed and they existed throughout all of history. And Nietzsche was actually bipolar and, you know, Kant was probably autistic and, and people do this. Okay, look, maybe, but also the, you know, these categories come out of the DSM-5, which is a manual for people who are trying to figure out like why you're not functioning at work and how to get you back to work. I'll say this. I do see these things as a bit more essential in, in that way. But I, do, I had this sort of like idea, you know, uh, like last year that the society probably draws out like let's like let like let's 
what's good with my assumption that they're 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 a fixed and essential and they're almost like brain brain types. I think this society brings out the worst of it. Like yeah, you know, I look at something like this sort of like millenarian and you know, we were talking about like mass shooters, right? We were like, you know, touch we touched on that for this sort of like millenarian urge to just go and destroy everything and you think that everything's gonna get better. I think that's literally a psychological response that gets drawn out. And when I look at like you know, I don't like the way because when I look at someone like a bipolar, or I look at like someone like bipolar, you know, people like to get on Kanye all the time. So he's crazy, he's crazy, he's crazy. Kanye's going through a lot of fucking shit, man. But you know what else? Kanye's more brilliant than you motherfuckers. He's way more brilliant than you motherfuckers, and it's not his fucking fault that he got put through a shit education system, yeah, in a shit fucking society, and the dude's running around like crazy to try to make sense of it. He's got everybody pulling him every which way direction. But the dude's more brilliant than half of you. You know, I'm not speaking to the audience here. Definitely uh, not. But, yeah. <laughs> but you know, people that would like step in to like criticize in that way, and I I feel the same way about ADHD. You know, I've to, to touch on the one point, then I want to you know comment on the other thing you said. I have uh, made it a, a a point to sort of rebel against anybody that would tell me that like oh, you shouldn't learn that way or you shouldn't be that way or that's not a good way to be or blah 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 blah. Like I really fucking hate that shit. Like I think that. You know, I've constantly had people treat me a certain way. And, you know, you go online, you read other ADHDers, and they say the same things. People treat me like I'm crazy. People say I'm incoherent. I don't make sense. People say I talk in a million different directions. But then when we all get in a room together, all of a sudden everything clicks and it's all fine. So what the fuck's up with that? And we structured society in such a way where those people are just not fucking valued. Except they are valued when Silicon Valley wants to come and mine their little brains, yeah. stick them behind a screen, and mine them for productivity, yeah. and stick them in these little creative boardrooms. Oh, but if you're at the factory, go fuck yourself, bud. Right. Like, go fuck yourself. You know, like, I hate that, and so I've made it, like, a point to, like, just completely resist that. God damn it, there was something else that you were saying. Uh, this will trigger it. This will trigger, trigger whatever you're trying to figure out, but I'm going to read two comments. One is uh, from Seamus Cameron, who's been here for a while. What's up, Seamus? Says, ADHD is something that has definitely existed throughout history, but people who would have been able to mask and function in society are no longer allowed to. It's become an information-dense hellscape. And then the other one is by Bijou Smith. Oh, you're back. What's up? Bit of both. ADHD stems for, from something natural and fairly wonderful. Modernism amplifies it and stigmatizes it. So I think that you're all on that team. I think you all need to at least be open to the possibility, though, of what I'm saying, which is that humans have interests. We don't always know why we have the interests that we have, but I'm sure that at a, if we wanted to do an evolutionary reductionism, we could just say that in terms of the species, like over the course of millions of years, um, there's probably something of value to the fact that we're all interested in different kinds of things from time to time. And that we might want to pursue a line on that interest. We might want to go deeper with it. Okay. And uh, a lot of societies honor the fact that you might be interested in something. And if they don't honor it, they at least don't dishonor it and then create an entire system that tells you, no, the only interests that are valid are the ones that are cohere with the arbitrary deadlines of authority figures who are in X, Y, and Z classes at this, that, and another time of day. So that when your interests aren't being honored and you're not able to actually follow through on them. Here's the thing. I, all of this is stemming from me functionally saying, you know, in terms of like these new 
uh, the, the mindsets I'm talking about applying when we're talking about getting into theory and philosophy and other, the rest of everything else is to honor the fact that you're distracted from something and don't beat yourself up about it. If you, because I think we spend a lot of time being like, I should be finishing that book right now, not looking into this other thing that I'm doing right now. Yeah, sure, maybe you shouldn't be scrolling Facebook or Twitter for fucking like three hours a day or whatever. Sure, but at the same time, maybe you shouldn't be going back to that book and you should be getting onto the next thing that you're interested in and there's nothing wrong with that. You don't have to fucking marry a person that you speed dated. And you, if you have the speed dating mentality when it comes to a book, then you can decide, nah, <laughs> this is not a lifelong fellow traveler of mine. It's okay. You don't have to fucking marry it. So, but also you can be polyamorous with books. You know, it might be a lot more complicated with humans who have hearts. But when it comes to books, they, they won't be too butthurt. The only people who are going to be butthurt that you're reading this book and not that book is a certain type of person at the university, in your school, or online, who goes, oh, you're reading Deleuze? You should be reading Heidegger. Oh, you're reading Foucault? You should be reading Marx. Oh, you're reading Freud? You should be reading Lacan. Oh, you're... Okay, shut the fuck up. Come on. I'm interested in this right now. Help me out. It's okay to honor yeah. someone's interests. Yeah. So, but, okay. Listen, I, yeah. I, I, I make the essentialist claim on autism and, and, and on ADHD simply to say that we are the more developed advanced species and we are slowly you know dominating the planet but um but no uh what what, what trigger trigger my uh uh trigger my um what was the other thing that you were saying that i wanted to, to bounce off of other than the adhd was it about um people uh who are getting radicalized and how uh this is you know this is something's being brought out um no but let's just go with that so that's how i feel like when I look at these shooters, for example, right? I'm a, I'm a clarify because, like, you know, I think it's a, I think it's, you know, to just just say something like that, it, it, it can be a bit insensitive and, and fucked up. So I'm just gonna try to clarify it the best I can, and then acknowledge that I, I don't fully know, but this is my intuition. So when I look at a lot of these people that are doing this, I have to wonder to myself, like, you know, the, sort of like traditional way that typically people think about this is they went online and they got radicalized into something and so some specific eliminationist ideology and that ideology is what guided them across the board to carry that thing out that's like sort of your like I, your, your radical idealist perspective of why people are doing this right and then you know the, the retort that you hear to that is it's mental illness right these people are just mentally ill as if, and I'm closer to your perspective on mental mental illness and all this stuff than I'm not, because I hate how people just write that off. Like, oh, it's just mental illness. It's just, it's just. But like, where is that coming from? And and even if we make the claim that it's a, an essential thing, like even if we make the claim that oh, schizophrenia is kind of like in humans or bipolar is in humans, why the fuck does it manif? Why would it manifest itself in such a way? that someone would go and, and go out and commit something like that. It doesn't make any sense. And so the things that come to mind for me are, you know, concepts like millenarianism, which for anybody that doesn't understand millenarianism or millennialism um, is this idea um, mostly studied in Christianity where, you know, there's an oppressive uh, a force coming down on you and then, you know, the, the, the 
people start developing a sort of story to explain what that oppressive force is, what's causing that oppressive force, who that oppressive force is, what what should be done about it, and then and then the millennial or millenarian part is we're going to you know overthrow this force, and then on the other side of it is going to be a glorious new day. There's going to be you know the day when Christ comes back. There's going to be the day when the temple falls. You know, um, you get this a lot in like indigenous cultures where they fall into what's called a cargo cult. And I'm less uh, read up on cargo cults, but it's essentially this idea that they get exposed to a more technologically advanced society. And then they start having this belief that some sort of like technological advancement is going to come and that's going to liberate them and save them. And they're going to throw off their oppressors. Honestly, you could look at communism and Nazism as millenarian ideologies, and most arguably, you know, people like to pick on Christianity, but those two are responsible for most of the deaths that we've ever seen. Um, And I think that it's, I don't think millenarianism is some ideology that people go into. I think it's a psychological reaction to, like, either a real or, you know, if we want to go into, like, again, like, the most, like, weird post-structuralist, a perceived you know, feeling of oppression and most typically cultural oppression um, is where it emerges the most. It's, it's usually not even a material like, oh, I'm being like I'm living in poverty. It, it's, it's a feeling that your your humanity is being stripped from you, your essence, your culture, every all your values are being taken away from you and your backs being put up against the wall. And when you look at all these shooters, they all sort of like have, even if they don't have the, there's a glorious new day coming, they all sort of have this like dark, like, you know, nihilistic perspective on, on the world. And, and they have this feeling like they're basking the wall. Now the most obvious example of the sort of millenarian mass shooter would be the white nationalists. You know, they literally feel that their culture is being replaced and taken away from them. They feel their backs against the wall. And the only way out is, as Tarrant described it, political, you know, or insurrectionary accelerations. And, and that's where the shit gets really fucking scary. Another example of a, a, a millenarian cult that did a lot of damage was Ocean Rikyo in Japan. I mean, they thought that there was going to be, they thought Shoko Asahara, their cult leader, was the reincarnation of Christ. And they were going to shrug off this evil world and go forward into a new day and that they were going to, and, and they literally, you know, built up an entire, like, industry in their little cult produced sarin gas, and they were going to gas the entire city. Thankfully, although, you know, that plot didn't play out, but they still gassed the subways. So I think where, you know, you've had these all throughout history, but I think it's getting worse. And it's, it's starting to appear more schizophrenic in the sense that there's no, like, core to some of these things. So what do I mean by that? So with some of the mass shooters, they don't seem to have a particular belief. They just seem to have a sort of violence about them. And it's sort of like, it's almost like they're millenarians with no millennium. And what is that? To me, it's people that have been so alienated from everything. They've had just so like, they're in such a postmodern hell. They've had every sense of meaning, you know, Maybe we could like even blame like bad interpretations of Nietzsche for this. They they have been put in such an existential state that it, it's like the violence 
just becomes violence just for violence. So, like, if we look at the Columbine shooters, and actually, ironically, if you go listen to Peterson, Peterson's got a really good explanation for this on the Columbine shooters, is people, they, they weren't bullied. It's not that they were bullied. Um, it's, it's, it's not that they were just mentally ill, um, although you could argue that Eric was a sociopath and that Eric was driving some of that. But Dylan still went out and did it. And, and, and you know, the sort of like public, you know, if you, if you dig into the stuff, the sort of public idea is that popular idea is that Dylan was not just a mentally ill person. When you look at like what they believed, they didn't really believe in much. Now, some people might point like, oh, but they praised Hitler. They were neo-Nazis. Not really. They weren't really neo-Nazis. Like, they they didn't have a coherent ideology. The ideology that they had was that they hated society. Didn't that people society also blame Nine Inch Nails because they had like a Nine Inch Nails hoodie, right? This is they like... They tried to blame Marilyn Manson, Nine Inch Nails. They tried to play the, blame the fact that they, they watched... They played Doom. They tried to blame the fact that they had neo-Nazi literature. They tried to blame the fact that they were bullied, even though they weren't bullied. And it really, they tried to blame the fact that Eric orchestrated the whole thing. But it, it, it is all sort of missing the point and missing the point that they're, what, out of their own mouth, they said, we're going to destroy the world. And of course, they're two teenagers, so they can't destroy the world. So what were they going to do? They were going to take propane tanks put them in the cafeteria, blow them up, and shoot people as they came running out. Well, the propane tanks didn't go off, thank God, or we'd have the most, the highest mass you know, casualty event next to you know, 9-11. There's like 600 people in that cafeteria. Um, so they just walked in. But what, what they, if you could have handed them a button to blow up the entire world, they would have pressed it. They would have done it. And you know what? I'm just going to, you know, to, to, to offer some vulnerability. I felt that way before in my life. Same. I have felt yeah. so fucking... Like, I've had a bad life. You know, I'm not going to get into it and say, like, oh, I've had the worst life ever. But, like, I have felt times in my life where I'm like, you know what? I'd, put, I'd press that fucking button because fuck this shit. Fuck this shit. And it's never going to get better. And I think that this sort of modern hellscape or this postmodern hellscape or this late capitalist hellscape, it's accelerating that feeling. It's, it's making that to where it seems like you get so angry and you become so hateful and you become so resentful of the very essence of that. There is even life that you would be like, fuck it. Just fuck it all. Right. You like, hate life and you also resent people who don't hate it at that point. That can be yes. another big factor, right? Other it, people it, it, who it, have it easier than you they're that you think that they're privileged and that they don't deserve it, you know, or that you think that they have their head up their ass, or you think that their enjoyment of, of, of things in the, or a pleasure in the, in the way that things currently exist is part of the reason that you're suffering. Right. And so like, Oh, you will also suffer. Someone in the chat just said, it certainly isn't the guns copium. Um, like, well, I, and obviously, the guns, the gu okay, you know what the guns are? I'm going to say this. The guns are a force amplifier. Just like yeah. sarin gas was a force amplifier for Aum Shinrikyo. Obviously, the guns are going to scale up the imagination of your carnage, and they're going to scale up the ability for you to play out your carnage. But your, your fucking feelings that are inside, they didn't emerge because of guns. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, it's such a fucking stupid thing to say. No, I don't think that's what Latorio was saying. Um, oh, okay. But like, I don't think Latorio was saying the guns caused it. 
Um, but I think Seamus Cameron, your point. So it's that moment when you're really glad you'll never be trusted with the red button because you feel like you'd push it if given the chance. Well, here's the, here's the, the, you know, it, it, cause obviously the NRA talking points, like it's not gun's fault. Like it's the person who did it. Well, yeah, but, um, you know, how long does it take me to get to the post office? Obviously the next question is, do I have, am I in a hurry? And do I have a fucking car with gas in it? Obviously, if I have a fucking car with gas in it and I'm in a hurry, well, it takes five minutes. If it, if not, then obviously it's going to be a walk or a, or a bike ride. Like the the medium, the technology plays a role. And so, in the in the example here, Seamus, yeah, if you have if they had a red button, they would have annihilated the universe like Thanos, except the whole thing, not just one third. Because it wasn't just some population bullshit, right? So, it would just be actually like annihilate everything, right? So, that's what Onshinrikia wanted to do. I mean, that guy—he literally sat around and he wanted, well, he wanted to put them all in a little, you know, silo and then blow everybody else up. But he had this like fantasy that he—he he would. It's actually kind of why Onshinrikia was such a failure because his megalomania was so like so much that he would go to his scientists and he'd be like. I want to find a new, even more evil and more elaborate way to kill people. And then they couldn't, like, measure up to his, like, elaborate fucking megalomania. But that megalomania was to destroy everything. It was to end existence, you know, as it is. Um, That feeling is in varying degrees in our society. And I think that it's getting worse. You know, I saw someone post online, they're like, the civil war is already here. It's just that we're so atomized and so individualized and our lives are so miserable now that it's not a civil war between the two sides. It's a battle royale. And I was like, it, 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 it made me sick to my stomach to read it, but I was like, yeah, that's, that's kind of a sense that I get, you know? Um, um, you know, I, and I think that like, it, we see this in all like different aspects of our society. We see it in gangs. Why the fuck do people kill each other over sneakers? Why? You're going to tell me it's just because they have some honor culture? That's some bullshit, dude. Those people are, they, it's like they have intense nihilism. You know, it's like, and and there's there's even a sort of like, uh, you know, uh, uh, Tupac said this, there's a sort of like, um, there's a sort of attitude, a dark nihilistic attitude that runs through those communities, which is like, I ain't shit. I ain't never going to be shit. You know, so I should stop thinking I'm shit. You know, this is things that you know people say to each other, right? And this is but this is sort of- this is this is a you know, and so this gets racialized, obviously, and so this is uh, and there's a degree to which it is a racial thing because it gets racialized, and therefore it be, it does there is an element or a degree to which it actually becomes a racial thing. But and this is the important part. Sure. This is the important part. Fucking uh, like where I come from, uh, uh. This is all present. So, yeah, uh, this is. I, I grew up in Appalachia. It's the same sort of attitude. Yeah, so you grew up in the Appalachians. I grew up in rural North Idaho, you know. And so, it's just like you don't have. This is why, with my, my whole. Like my, 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 my developing way of thinking about the world, uh, with time energy theory and everything like this, I'm always talking about opportunities. I'm always talking about uh, communities of potential recognition. I'm always talking about uh, being able to develop relationships with loved ones, not just like, oh, we go and do a consumer activity, but like actually 
No, like we actually get to know one another and we actually have like deep ongoing dialogue. Do you have a few people like that in your life? A lot of people don't. 50% of a generation right now says that they don't have any friends. So no, they, you know, are people able to cope without friends? Yeah, most of them are able to cope. Um, some people fucking hate everything and want to destroy it and they keep living their lives and going on anyway. But then there's a fucking day when they do something crazy. And it's just like it, the uh, there used to be like a lot more like broadly speaking, like this this environment is a big factor view when thinking about poverty and when thinking about the hood or the wood where I come from. <laughs> it's the wood. <laughs> it's not the yeah, hood. I, I never, yeah, I, I kind of like never been about Yeah, no one's, a, yeah. The wood, the hood, wherever you're from. Yeah. If you don't have opportunities for achieving anything worthwhile and you don't have mentors and you don't have relationships with people who are going to invest in you and you don't have the tools or resources to be able to develop yourself and your talent and find your calling. Yeah, no, it's fucking absolute misery. It's, you know, can I just say something controversial? It's worse conditions than what we experienced under feudalism. It's worse. It's worse. At least under feudalism, you had your commons, you had your people, and there was a sort of, a, you know, you had your bubble of what you were inside of, right? And what you could work towards and, and, and work up to. Now you're just in this fucking vacuum. It's like a vacuum without oxygen. And then not only that, but you're told that you're free. You're, you're in charge. You know, I have this, like, way that I put it. It's like we used to be in, in Auschwitz, you know? It's like we used to be in Auschwitz. And there was a fucking asshole running everything and just doing everything he could to fucking control us. But then it's like one day we woke up and suddenly we weren't in Auschwitz anymore. We were in Disneyland. But, uh, no, 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 I'm messing it up. It's that we we were sort of like in a condition in the past where we, you know, we had an environment in which we were existing, right? And there was things that were expected of us. But then we, we accelerate to capitalism and individualism. And all of a sudden it's like, getting dropped off at Disneyland by your parents and your dad's like, you know what? Have fun. I'm going to go now. Oh, um, here's all these rides that you can ride. You're going to love it. And then you're like, Oh, thank you, daddy. This is wonderful. Oh, daddy, can I have your credit card for you go? So I could have some food and, and get on the rides. Oh, sorry, honey. I can't do that. But if you go out to the beginning of the park at the entrance to the park, you can sell oranges. And if you sell enough oranges, you'll be able to get on the rides and buy some food. And you might even own one of those rides one day. So have fun. Bye. And it's like, it's evil. It's fucking evil. It's like this this vacuum, this 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 oxygen-free space. And sorry, I'm, I'm starting to rant here because I get like worked up about this. But like, it's it's intolerable the conditions we put people into. It's beyond alienation. It's beyond anything fucking Marx was talking about. Marx was talking about you feel like your labor is being stolen from you and, and you feel like you're not a part of the process. It's worse than that. It's worse than that. It's where you are focusing you like on two elements of the four and the, the one that people leave out the most, uh, besides like feeling like a person that's like kind of on the same page as the other people around you, which is one of the ones you're getting at, which is one of those four, um, is also the understanding how things work in the world that you're in. And I think that that's one of the big ones that people don't think about. So you just touched on the two that anarchists always talk about. 
Um, and that I think maybe even a lot of Marxists who popularize that shit, but nobody reads a strange labor. It's a very short reading. It's your assignment. It's the one thing that I want you to read this year. <laughs> you got to do it. But anyway, no, I, I don't want to cut you off and bust your balls over this because basically what you're saying is exactly the part of that alienation that I care about the most. So I am a hundred percent there with you. So keep going with it. Yeah. So, um, well, that's, that's another part of it too, is you have an understanding of what's in your world, right? And I think that there's two things that make this harder for us today is that the world's become more complex, right? And so it's, it's literally harder to understand. But right. then also, I think I, I, I botched my Disney expression, but the reason the Disney expression is, 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 is so um, powerful to me is that you are at, you're not in Disney. You're in August you're in a fucking concentration camp where you're being extracted and then you're going to be used up and then tossed aside into the trash heap, right? But there's this illusion that's been produced in front of you that you're not in that situation, that actually you're in a really great situation right. and things are wonderful and it's all your fault. Yeah, in, in fact, like, if you can't learn to love it and succeed, then you actually deserve failure. Yeah, it's... It's evil. And that's another thing that, like, you know, if we want to go back to feudal times, you know, you, you ever watch uh, A Fiddler in the Roof? You know, there's this, like, scene in the movie. And, and I'm not romanticizing feudal times, but I'm just saying, like, we need to recognize this so we can recognize what the fuck's wrong right now and do something about it. Because this is, like, it's going to keep getting worse from here. It's going to keep getting worse. Um, especially as people develop the means more and more to fucking wipe each other out. I mean, we're, we have 3D printed guns on the horizon, and we'll probably have you know, uh, uh, fucking homegrown fucking biolabs. And we have I, deep I, I, fake and we have deep fake technology, which hasn't even gotten oh, going. Right. Like it's going, right, right. but it's, it's not even yeah, close so to where it's going. We're not even gonna... accounting the way that you can cause damage in the infosphere, right? You know? Um, yeah, so... well, because if you can make any enemy say anything, obviously there will be come more mass distrust of every everything that we're being told that we need sure. to believe which is why i've been saying most people haven't heard me just i mean okay i've said it a few times online oh. but i'm guessing most people have uh -huh. missed it but we live in a post-trust society and i don't think there's any going back yeah we do live this is this is why the this is why I want to challenge like this. It's the misinformation. It's the misinformation. It's the misinformation. Fucking talking point that liberals have been pushing. It's not just the misinformation. It's this fucking you posturing as the one who fucking knows, and now people just need to get in line and follow and believe. Yeah. It's not about vaccines. It's not about conspiracy theories. Those are all a handful of people who are the tip of the fucking iceberg. the The rest of that iceberg is just post trust culture. Period. And if you don't take that to be a reality and then think and respect it and ex expect and respect the fact that people aren't going to trust you and then fucking step it up for people who aren't going to trust you instead of just fucking admonishing and scapegoating people who don't trust you and then, and then saying, oh, well, if you don't trust, then you're just a fucking this. You, oh, you're just a that. I'm sorry. You're, you're, you're done. You're, ex you're accelerating the conditions for a war. Yeah. Well, and that is exactly you're what setting it is. up this. You're you're literally drawing out the lines on the board and saying, "Get in the pen, guys. Get in the fucking pen." And like, and once you're in there, we're coming in after you. I mean, that's what we're doing. That was the other part of why I got blackpilled on what the, this you know counterviolent extremism world was doing because they're doing just exactly that. They're saying it's all misinformation, it's misinformation, misinformation. I'm like, no, 
you don't understand that no one trusts you and there's no reason that they should trust you and structurally there's no basis for anyone to trust anything in that sense that's why earlier in the conversation i was like caleb when people ask you what should they read um where do you point them and i say either read everything or don't fucking read anything because i don't think that you have the time to do the thing that you to do the work that you need to do and i don't wouldn't expect you to have the time and so therefore it's all info hazards for you it's all info hazards you know and, and i don't think there needs to be that's a whole other problem that we have to deal with and i know that a lot of people you know would just say well i'll just i'll just make my ideas hegemonic but as soon as your ideas are hegemonic the problem just reemerges itself like i don't it's frustrating to me and the only way out of it it seems the way society's going is we'll just create a totalitarian authoritarian dystopia and then we won't you know we'll be able to clamp down on the problems we'll just securitize everything and that's and that's what i got frustrated with, with the whole cve thing is they think that they're building out these you know these profiles and models that'll be used to prevent the issue but i saw quickly where the funding's not heading that direction the funding's heading onto the back end of the problem, uh, or no, on the front end of the problem, where it's, um, well, we'll use all these models and and profiles to target these people and then arrest them to eliminate them. Shut down their bank accounts. Shut down their bank accounts. We're going to use these profiles to basically wage war on these people and beat them into submission. And I'm sorry, like, I don't hate these people. I'm sorry, but I don't. I don't hate them. Even some of the really nasty ones, I don't hate them that much. You know, I don't. It's, obviously, if there's some motherfucker about to commit an attack or, or committing an attack or running a terror cell, I'm not sympathetic to their ass getting arrested, securitized, and shut down. You're right, but right. like, it's expanding. That the, the that the limits of who counts is that is expanding, and you saw that after January 6. You saw where now the word terrorist was just applied to everybody. Right. And 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 saying yeah, it, two things I want to touch on here uh, in from the chat. Um, uh, I'm gonna do it really quick here because there's so many things that we can get into right now. But uh, one, actually, three things that I'm gonna touch on in the chat, and I, I want to get a little bit deeper into what you're talking about. But we're gonna do this properly, ADHD style. So uh, one is uh, uh, Bijou says, didn't Tupac come from liberal culture and money? Some myth making there. Shout out to Pascal Robert and his writing on black capitalism. And okay, not only is he probably still connected to the culture, I, I'm going to be a complete skeptic and say I'm not. I don't know. But here's the thing, and and I wanted to talk about money. So we talked about like I, I was saying, you know, from the hood or from the wood, um, you know, not having possibilities, not have, you know, no, no time, energy, no resources, no whatever. You know, you've got you've got free time to kill, and you've got some some like other people who have some free time to kill, but none of you have fucking parents. And then if you if you if you actually have your parents, then they're too busy for you. And then when they are home, they're probably drinking just to because they're just recovering from the fact that they've got no opportunities and they've got to go back to work. And 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 their soul has been crushed. And they have, yeah, it's this complete alienation or however they're coping, right? Well, the thing I wanted to bring up though is, you know, I, I was basically making it out to be about poverty. The real thing is poverty of souls. And I keep going back to souls. I, I don't fucking I, look. People get all like, "Oh, you're talking about the soul? What is this like?" What are you talking about the soul? Like, like it's a like religious thing or something. It's like, first of all, 
we were talking about how like people want to just avoid using something that gets at something because someone else uses it that they don't like or whatever. I think that's utterly absurd. There is something to uh, the human that goes beyond your base, you know, necessary reproduction and that has tremendous capacities for good and harm that can be cultivated for better and for worse. And it can, it can, it can, it can, it can, it can be miserable if it's not cultivated for better and it can lead to a lot of harm. Okay. So yeah, this, this idea that like people don't have their soul, the, the impoverishment of souls is not just a poverty where it's obvious that people are in poverty. It's also a poverty in the suburbs and a poverty, um, for, for rich kids. I have friends who are rich kids. Like some of my best friends actually are kids whose parents had it, had it made. Like they were, they were, they were doing really well capitalists in the eighties, maybe even capitalists now. In one case, one of my friends, um, his dad actually just got richer, uh, with, with, uh, with the pandemic, sold a bunch of restaurants at the exact right moment. And then, uh, you know, turned that right around and put it into something else and just made out like a fucking killing, uh, like a beast. But here's the thing. Um, why do I have friends like this? Um, well, obviously they, they saw the opportunities that were being presented to them and they said, I can't align with that. That is, I cannot get excited about that. I cannot fucking get impassioned and, and, and da like dad, no, I can't do that for a living. What you are so obsessive over is not something I'm going to be able to be obsessive over dad. And so, and it really is in multiple cases now, a situation where it's like, you know, a really great mom and a fucking asshole dad who's just like, you're going to be like me and you're going to be a businessman. And guess what? It takes a lot more than that to have a relationship with someone who's been there ahead of you in life and is going to be able to help you out. And if that person doesn't want to have a relationship with you and has already reduced all of your time on earth to labor power and the development of capital and just sees you as that and that you're a failure if you don't do that. I'm, you can have all the money in the world. It's not going to fucking mean anything. Right? And so this is why it's, you know, I talk about time energy and I talk about, you know, potential recognition, communities of potential recognition, mentors, right? Like, no, you don't, this, look, but here's the thing. If, if, if that, you know, richer, if that rich parent was like, well, you know, actually I'm all for you having a liberal education. I've, I've made, I've gotten rich so you can be a liberal arts professor. If you want, you can fucking study underwater basket weaving for all I care. You know, I want you to be able to be you because I've not been able to be me and I've made sacrifices. Okay. In that case. And then they, you know, they put you through an education system. That's not just Oh, preparing you for a life in the workforce, but it's actually, you know, you actually get to develop your interests, you know, early on. Um, here's the thing. And this is me, my way of building off of the comment, uh, that someone else had, cause I said, I was going to hit off a bunch of these comments. Someone said capitalism. Oh, it's me. Thinks forsooth says capitalism accelerates death drives of the impoverished. I wanted yeah, to get in. I'm getting at. Yeah. And so, but here's the thing about death drive. Everybody's got a death drive and everybody's got. And, and, and nobody's happy with pure pleasure and avoidance of pain. People want jouissance. People want to be able to 
to foil their own projects and get in their own way. And people want to put themselves through suffering so that they can have something better. But at the same time, what can take over is uh, non-optimal ways of experiencing jouissance and non-optimal ways of that building into death drive. And if you've been through a liberal arts education, if you've which we said it already, it's the liberating arts. We're talking about philosophy, we're talking about art, we're talking about you could play the fucking violin and study music theory, and you could do all of that and still travel the world. Well, guess what? Your death drive and your libidinal economy as a subject has so much more outlets for that death drive. And some of those outlets might oh, even... Shit. Some of those outlets might even be healthy. But if your fucking death drive doesn't find a healthy outlet... You will destroy yourself and everyone in your life. And that's society's fault. That just I just want to comment on that quickly. That that made so much click for me. I mean, that explains why you see such a variety in how people destroy themselves. I mean, someone might say, Well, Faraday, you're saying that the people in the hood, they shoot each other. Well, uh, if, if what you're saying is so universal. Well, why don't people in, in, in the wood shoot each other like that? Or why why doesn't express itself in the same way? Or are you saying that in the hood they're more violent or something? It's like, but no, it's the structural environment around it. And then your body finds a way to express that what you're describing is a death trap. So in the hood, there's all these fucking guns laying around and there's a highly competitive drug market economy, which has been hoisted onto the community. And so that's how you end up playing out, you know, or well, that's one of the ways, you know, that, that it gets played out in those areas. But in the one, what do we get predominantly? Fucking drugs. Drugs. Yeah, it is drugs. drugs. It's it drugs. It's Percocets. And now it's fentanyl. It's fentanyl. It's Percocets. It's fentanyl. It's opioids, more generally. And it's, it's or it can be hustle and grind culture. It could be self-help. And so that's the thing is, but the thing is, is, you know, you can get impassioned about it for a while, uh, but it's, it's probably not going to work out. Right. And so it's, you know, whatever your, your escape is, uh, the question is, is does it have diminishing returns? There are escapes and lines of flight out of your situation. There are outlets for death drive that are not going to actually have diminishing returns. Or, like, let's just say you study philosophy. You, you, philosophy becomes the outlet for your death drive. Philosophy and theory becomes the outlet for your death drive. It has diminishing returns for your bank account in the sense that you're not hustling and grinding and building money that fucks and makes more money. Yeah. Uh, so in that sense, you're going broker over time because inflation keeps going and you're not making more money. Uh, you know, it's like Schopenhauer said, philosophy never made me a penny, but it saved me millions. <laughs> the, 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 the million saved was the shit of realizing I actually don't need a yacht to know that I'm fine. Right. But, uh, yeah. So anyway, people, so having, yeah. So he says alcohol, weed, coffee. Yes. Well, good night and hundred percent. But, uh, Lord Lotterio says people can't read everything. So you're saying read nothing. Like, okay, you, you, uh, uh, it's not literal. Like, you can't literally read everything. But if you have an, uh, a mindset that says, I'm here for it, and I'll fucking try. Um, if you don't have that mindset, then you're wasting your time. But if, if, it's if, a well, mindset. They're, they're bouncing off something I said. So, like, it, 
I worry that if a person does not have, if they've not, if someone has not, it's not that they don't have it because you have the internet, but if someone has not introduced them into a pathway to give context to all the things that they're learning, it's very easily that that knowledge is just going to get co-opted and lead them down a cult. Like we started out the conversations, like the whole conversation staying. Yeah. They're you, the far right, these fascists, these white nationalists, these acceler, even accelerations. I'll tell you what, accelerationists that want to destroy everything, some of them are the most educated motherfuckers you'll meet. Go talk to people that are in like groups like O9A or in siege culture. Some of them are very well read, extremely well read, and they will use all of that knowledge to get you to go out and commit a mass shooting and kill yourself. It's like, it's it, so. Yeah, like I think knowledge is really dangerous. Info hazards are really dangerous. And I were, you know, some people I'm like, yeah, if you don't have the ability, I had a guy contact me once. He's like, Faraday, I think I'm getting drawn into conspiracy theories, but I don't know. Like, he's like, I'm curious about the stuff, but I don't know. It seems like there's so much. And I told him, I was like, one of the pieces of it, I gave him many pieces of advice, but one of the pieces of advice was if you don't feel like you have the time, really educate yourself on these like really depressing existential things in society don't go into it dude because you're going to go into that rabbit hole and you're going to lose yourself and there's not going to be anyone there i'm not going to be able to there be there to, to, to hold a rope no one's going to be there to hold a rope and you're going to lose your mind because you're going to find a bunch of bad shit and then it's very and, and i don't have some direct youtube channel i can point you to that is like here's the safe place to go unfortunately none of us have constructed that yet you know, none of us have built some comprehensive, you know, playground of, of knowledge and education. It doesn't exist right now. Everybody thought it was bread tube. Eh. And Dave here, the motherfuckers, he wants them to read books. So. <laughs> Look, and I, you know, and on the whole, oh, where, where do we go? You know, what do we do? Uh, um, you know, there's. A lot of resources. I'm gonna drop some links in the chat, have them in the description, etc. You know, um, part of the issue is like if you can go into a bunch of debt and just go to college, but you have the right mindset and you find the right program, it's not a waste of your time and it sure beats killing yourself. And that's that was for me. There was a point when I realized, and I would never have used the word soul because I was such an atheist at the point that it was just like that was a dirty word to me. But I realized I had a debt to myself. I wasn't thinking I had an impoverished soul, but I knew I had a debt to myself because I'd been stupid, had been hanging out with nothing but drug addicts, had been increasingly experimenting with different things that were not good for me. Uh, my death drive didn't have any fucking positive outlets. I didn't have any concepts for fucking putting words to what I was going through. But I knew that I had no more way forward. And I'd always been anti-university because people were like, well, you seem to go to university. What are you doing? Why aren't you in university yet? Why are you just doing this job? Why are you part of the music scene? Why aren't you blah, blah, blah. And I was always like, what? So I can do what? What do you think I should do? What do you think I should do? I always put shit back on people. So what do you think I should fucking do? Oh, I don't know. Well, you go to the university and you figure it out. Well, when I finally burnt out on all of my other options, I was suicidal. It was, I, I didn't know what, what to do. And I was like, well, here's the thing. If my, if, if my inner state is so impoverished, then I owe something to myself that's greater than what I could owe to a university or to some bank. Right? And so that was why I just said, you know, I actually have never really had time to just sit and think. 
I've always been like back to work, back to work, back to work, back to work. And so it was a, it was a, it was a relief for me. I think a lot of people fresh out of high school though, shouldn't go to, shouldn't go to college at the same, at the same time. Cause if you don't find the program that you want, if you're not doing what you want, it's a waste of time. So anyway, I'm not saying drop out and I'm not saying drop in. I'm just saying like that you, you're, you're, you're the number one thing is stop focusing on trying to achieve a pleasurable, harmonious equilibrium in your life. Stop fucking guilt tripping yourself for not having achieved that yet. Stop just trying to avoid pain. The pleasure principle and rational actors is not the fucking theory of the subject that we're working with anymore because it's bullshit. And so you've got to find zones of discomfort and challenges, challenges that will actually help you like rise up and like overcome things. And it just can't be other people's possibilities. You're going to have to fucking figure it out. So if you're here for this, then the fact is, is you're probably working or gaming, multitasking, ADHD learner. That's why you're already here in the first place. Whether you have your time energy, relatively speaking or not, you're getting into something that's interesting. You might just be a little interested in it and you might be way fucking further than me or Caleb. So, uh, you know, the, 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 this is a point on people's journeys. And so a lot of people aren't going to just stay here and theory and philosophy is just a piece of the puzzle for them. Other people, it's going to be something they can go deeper and deeper and deeper into their whole lives. And it will just be better for them because they're not doing heroin. At the end of the day, it's, it's, it doesn't have to be good for the world in terms of personal liberation. It's not just, Oh, you know, we're not talking about personal liberation from bad ideas only. That's not, it's not just critical thinking. It's also personal liberation from other forms of enjoyment that you've been addicted to from other forms that have way worse diminishing returns. Right? So anyway, th this idea of like go hard and have a mindset that says you're up to the challenge. What, what Caleb said about the, you, you kind of have this attitude. It sounds like to me when, when, when these people come to you and they say this stuff, you have this kind of like a, it's kind of like a school of hard knocks kind of like, well, are you up to it? You're, you're doing it. You're watching videos about this stuff, but are you really up to it? Are you really going to go hard? Because you're, it sounds to me like you're just going to get swallowed up by this stuff. But if you really want to go hard, you can fucking go way deeper. There's way bigger, you know way bigger ideas that you can get into that will help you challenge the system than just this bullshit. That kind of is what I'm saying. And, you know, yeah. And, and maybe that's a product of my sort of like rough upbringing being raised by a bunch of silent generation motherfuckers that, you know, worked farms and shit. That kind of is what I'm saying. It's, it's like, listen, you know, like. I mean, yeah, I'm not even going to repeat it. You, you well, said it perfect. Well, and here's why, you know? here's why I, I, I spotted it is 